All right. Hopefully everything works. Sorry for the delay. Um, this is supposed to be a 7 p.m. It's now almost 8 p.m. Uh, <laughs> I apologize for the delay, but it looks like we're live. Welcome, everyone. Um, this is second uh, episode of IndigoCast. Um, I believe that's the name. It's been a while. So uh, with me are some great uh, friends I've made on the Internet. Here we've got my dry bread. He's a Let's Player. He's been some great content for a lot of games, but he's probably most famous for his Pokemon Let's Plays. I've got Griffin Muffin, who's probably most well-known for his World of Warcraft and uh, uh, a lot of really good Witcher content, actually. So, Griffin Muffin. They can only hear you in the left ear. Yes! Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, down... Okay, I can tell you where to go for this. Yep, I know exactly. <laughs> I set this up, to, like, however many times. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you got a down mix to mono yeah, and the advanced audio. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, right, Great right. start, everybody. Yeah, I, I set this up literally five times, so. Great. Well, I hope your left ear is happy. Um, hopefully I'm in both ears now. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, Griffin Muffins from Australia. He's a, a good buddy of mine. Um, we also have Soul Purpose. He's uh, just passed 50,000 subscribers. Congrats on that, Soul Purpose. Uh, you do a lot of like uh, reviews and... Um, uh, gaming related content. Uh, I've watched a few of your videos, really high production values. So, um, I think we're, are we mostly uh, two or three of us are in East coast, right? Uh, I am on the East coast. Yeah. Right. I think we're East there. coast. Yeah. Cool. Or so, close enough. Same time zone. Hopefully, uh, everything is all sorted. Let me know if there's any issues, uh, any particular, you know, thing breaking or anything like that, but otherwise we should be good. Welcome everyone. How's everyone doing tonight? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. All right. So now that the disaster's over, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I switched. Uh, I switched programs at the last minute, which is a great idea. So do that every time you need to go live. Switch the, all mm -hmm. the software you're using. So cool. So um, this this podcast, I'd like to cover. Um, I, I we kind of discussed some topics, and the one that kind of stuck was uh, the best and worst game design trends that have uh, been happening as of late. Um, we all wrote down some ideas, so hopefully we can get through uh, in a couple hours, because uh, Soul Purpose has to leave around 10. So let's go for that. Um, so I'm going to do it in just kind of some random order. Here we got uh, walking and talking cutscenes. This is an idea I wrote down. Um, you ever play those games where you're like walking down a corridor with some other characters and they're discussing, you know, important story elements that are all 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 are really important and, and interesting and stuff, but you can't do a damn thing while that, while it's going on and you're completely stuck. Yeah. It's basically a cutscene that you can't skip. You ever have that? Yeah. Yeah. I actually wrote that down as well. Forgetting that you put that, <laughs> I call that hold W to cutscene where <laughs> they don't want you to skip their cutscene because they worked very hard on it. And so they rip away your control as a player and you just need to hold W until the cutscene is over. Sometimes you need to click something to say your prayers or whatever, or some completely <laughs> meaningless interactable. But for the most part, it is there to waste your time because they really want you to see the cutscene every single time that you play the game. And as I said in, in my amazingly formatted notes there, it's like, it kills any chance that you're going to have a speed run on the game unless it's Resident Evil 7 that somehow still has speed running, even though it's got so much press W to, uh, to cutscene. It oh, yeah. takes the control away from the player. It, ah, it kills replayability because you don't want to go through that frustration over and over. The game's got to be really damn good for you to want to keep going back to it if it's got stuff like that. 
Like, I can't tell you how many times I've done the first hour and a half of Fable the Lost Chapters, the oh, tutorial man. growing up thing. Oh, man. It's, yeah. it's because I love the game so much. If I didn't love the game so damn much, <laughs> I would go insane. So could you imagine how much worse it is if that first one hour and a half is holds W? Mm. Yeah. I think this way, could, the way it can be done more organically is to do stuff like, uh, stereotypically speaking, looking back to like the bioware rpgs of 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 old and pillars of eternity how they do like the companion interactions and they're randomized so you could like leave and start walking around they'd be like they just spark a conversation it's a conversation you may not have heard of before but it reveals things about characters and the events of the world that you can kind of still feel it's organic rather than just feeling like at every point and at a certain point in your adventure within an rpg it will say the exact goddamn cutscene line of like this world this world is nothing like it used to be or something you know yeah. the world is changing <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah and i totally agree um it, it's actually i almost blame games like uh half-life for that because half-life was was incredibly good but it, it did the one thing that lo a lot of games didn't do at the time where uh the entire game from start to finish was within your control and it, mm -hmm. it, it was i think the first not necessarily the first instance, but the most prominent uh, early instance I remember of a game giving you the 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 false sense of control while having unskippable events that are happening in front of you for extended periods of time. And and although I think it was probably done pretty well in in Half Life compared to a lot of modern games, it, it's still I think one of the early uh, guilty parties in terms of. Hey, you're controlling. You can look around. You can move, but and you're gonna have to stay in this room for the next ten minutes while we explain the plot to you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think uh, the important thing to like uh, keep in mind, I think, from like a development standpoint, is mechanics still say something. Just because you like put people in a gameplay like uh, situation, doesn't mean like it's superior to com or to a cutscene in a traditional sense. I would much rather have a cutscene where it's Me like you, know, you can use the camera, you can allow it to kind of like you know use the tools of film to tell the story, and yeah, uh, definitely. yeah you don't have to have just walking around. Um, I do think like The Last of Us, I think has like some clever tricks to kind of make it less um, obnoxious, where they uh, they kind of guide you to go to a certain direction. Um, and they don't like tell you that you're like, you know, you're on rails when you are in fact on rails. And if, you know, you really like dive deep into it, you can reveal the man behind the curtain, but, um, they at least try to like convince you or persuade you to go a certain way instead of just making you press W. Like, I think God, it's also it's, like finding the place to put exposition in and stuff like that yeah. depends on what the player is doing at the time. I think uh, in relation to what you said and being on rails and stuff like in say God of War four, like you inevitably have to get in the boat and you have to travel to destinations to do certain quests. Like, and then at the same time, when Mamiya comes along, like he can provide more context to the world and make it feel like much more larger. And it also gets across like Atreus's character of like being so curious all from just being in a boat, just getting from one day place to the place to the other. Like that's a good place to do it. And in contrast, I can talk about Greedfall. In Greedfall, it's like this kind of a cross between open world and hub world RPG. Like you have these really thick, rich, expansive kind of hub areas, but nothing happens in between them. So it largely just feels like a very picturesque kind of empty sort of experience sometimes because it should have had something to actually talk about as you're walking along. 
Yeah, I've heard that uh, as a common complaint about about that game. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd add to that uh, all good points. I'd add to that, like, uh, I think um, there's definitely Naughty Dog games are definitely pretty guilty of that. But I think with, if I remember from Last of Us, they had unskippable cut or they had skippable cutscenes, and then they had a lot of times there were situations where they'd bookend actions with a little bit of expository dialogue or just like character banter or whatever. And mm-hmm. in those particular instances, I think that's okay. Like if you're climbing up something and you say, uh, Oh man, I'm really feeling my age or whatever. That's perfectly fine because you're still doing an action during that time. But it's just the can't run, can't leave the designated path. I mean, probably one of the most guilty ones I think are whether or not you have, you know, control over your, your horse or your car or whatever, uh, Rockstar games have a lot of just like dialogue time. We're just on the road talking and, it, and you know, it's, I guess it's part of the game, but uh, I, I know there's definitely situations there where you, you really have no volition or no free will. You just have to follow the path until the conversation's over. And uh, yeah, if it's just like that, if there's no way you can really affect the world with your actions during that time, I'd rather just have a skippable cutscene at that point. Yeah. yeah. Like one thing I've really liked, I had to, uh, batter on it again but like god of war is like if you say along your journey just stop and get out of the boat like mamiya goes oh we'll continue this later or something mm-hmm. like that and it kind of just that little line just makes you go oh yeah he was talking rather than having like you'll be doing a dialogue uh, having a dialogue between characters and you stop at your destination that just <clears throat> then the audio cuts out you know it yeah yeah but little uh uh kind of bridges to kind of make the conversation seem a bit more real and that's one one trend kind of a sub trend of this is the um at least with sci-fi games or modern games, uh, you'll be talking to somebody in person, and if you're bored, you'll just walk away. And at, once you uh, get out of uh, distance of their dialogue, they'll switch to radio. So you can start doing something in some other area, and they'll just talk to you over the radio. It's still annoying, but like I know Borderlands does that a lot. Um, it's still a little bit like uh, a, a little bit much, but it's better than having to sit there and just wait for them to complete their entire stand-up routine, and and then you leave. You at least can start shooting other people or, or collecting loot in some other area while, while you're just talking over radio. But it's, it's a problem because a lot of games are very nat- narratively focused now, so people expect that story. But especially with replays, and um, I never... Uh, you, uh, Madribride, you bring up a really good point about uh, it must completely butcher uh, any sort of... Uh, you know, speed runs or things like that, where you just have to. Oh God, yeah. Um, I I do a little bit of speed running, and I'm friends with a lot of speed runners. And my God, let me tell you that whole whole W to cutscene thing. Like every speed runner, that that's what bounties get put on is finding ways to skip those because it ruins your speed game. Nobody wants to play the game where for 15 straight minutes you in some fashion or another are holding w and turn in the camera a little bit to try and speed things up it is the most horrible thing in the world like again the only speed game that i can think of that is still played semi-competitively that has pressed w to to uh cutscene is resident evil 7 and it's and it has it multiple times the only reason people speed run that is because the actual gameplay of it which is the majority of the run is good and skill oriented but i i can't see myself replaying resident evil 7 even though uh, let's play the whole game i really genuinely really enjoyed it it's one of the few games where uh 
I found myself playing for hours and hours and just doing these bulk recording sessions because it felt like time was just flying by. I was really loving it. And that's weird for me because I'm a classic Resident Evil guy, like the old tank control one. Yeah. Those are my favorites. But I was really, really liking this. Um, but I cannot see myself going back and playing it again because when I think about it, I don't think about how much fun I had. I think about... Oh, God, I'm going to have to legitimately hold W for 15 minutes because the opening is 15 minutes. Yeah. Of just walking slowly <laughs> and holding W. Like, genuinely, that's the speedrun record for that beginning bit is like 15 minutes. Yeah. I mean, so that's if you do optimal movement. Yeah, and some games have it. Imagine uh, speedrunning uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. I, I've heard that pretty common three to four hours is the runway to get through the beginning part. Like, that's got to be. Not that it was designed yeah. to be a speedrunning running game, but like uh, I think that uh, a really like you should have a like like movies for example have this kind of unwritten rule that by the thirty minute mark there should be an event that kind of sparks the whole story. Like you've got all your setup done, there should be an event that really sparks the story to move it forward. Yeah. And pretty much the inciting every, incident, yeah, yeah, the inciting incident. Like uh, with Matrix, almost thirty minutes exactly. Neo touches the mirror and enters the Matrix for the first or exits the Matrix for the first time. You know, like uh, a okay. Robo Robocop. That makes sense. Robocop, 30 minutes, you see Robocop on screen for the very first time. You know, like almost every really well paced mm -hmm. movie, it follows that rule. Video games, you can be, you know, Doom, you bo boot up the game within 20 seconds of actual, like, being in the game, you're shooting zombies in the face. Like, you're already, like, yeah. really, really, uh, you know, really fast. And not every genre is going to be the same, but there's some games where, you know, Kojima games, for example, <laughs> you have to wait through a ton <laughs> of stuff to even get into like any sort of media gameplay, you know, other than like, you know, press A to, you know, acknowledge so and so that nano machines exist or whatever. But uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, I, I have a modified version of that rule, kind of. In fact, I think I brought this up in my Resident Evil uh, 7 Let's Play because I was so annoyed with the whole W to cutscene. Um, and you might be familiar with a, uh, a part of this. Back in the day in Half Life, there was a coin term of time to crate because it came out at a time when every game had crates in it, destructible crates, and you could get items from destructible crates. That was just a ubiquitous thing in PC gaming. And yeah. so people came up with the graph of time to crate. How long average into this game before you find a crate that's destructible? And that was like a running joke. I have a thing called time to game. So yeah. my very, very vague definition of a video game is... It's going to be like video format, and it's a series of meaningful decisions that is done for entertainment. Uh, so when is the first time in the game that you have a meaningful decision? There is perhaps uh, a yes or no choice or something with a branching path or you were in any danger whatsoever. In some way, you had to take control. Uh, mm. Time to game in Resident Evil 7 for me was 30 minutes, which is far too long. Wow. What yeah. I like is a time to game of five minutes. And I think a great example of how if you hook the player early with gameplay, they will sit through an enormous amount of bullshit is Metal Gear Solid 3, which is one of my <laughs> favorite video games. The first time I ever played it, it had probably already been out for like seven years and I played it and uh, I, it had gave me like five minutes of dialogue that I liked and then it dropped me into the gameplay. I played the gameplay for about 10, 15 minutes, and I loved it. Then I legitimately had, I think it was 40 straight minutes of cutscene and conversation. <laughs> and I sat through it, absorbing every little bit of it and loving it because I'd already learned that I like the gameplay. 
And so I had made the decision that, yes, I will allow myself to get invested in this because I know this is not a waste of my time because I like the game. If I don't get any gameplay before that point, I don't know. Like with Resident Evil 7, I was going out on a limb with that. 30 minutes to just to to pick up a weapon and get into a fight, which I'm not even convinced I could have died in. Like, I think it was like one of those cutscene boss fight things where they yeah. make you feel like you're in danger, but you're not really. Like, uh, so... Yeah, time to game is a good uh, is a good metric. Like, uh, like I said, yeah. Doom 2016 and also... all, all Dooms, except for maybe Doom 3, you're okay. like in there fighting, fighting demons, usually within a few seconds, like literally just a couple of seconds. But I mean, not every game is necessarily going to be able to drop you in that quickly but i think you need that kind of teaser of what you're going to get before you drop just tons of dial uh, tons of exposition i think you're just kind of you're just overloading the intro and i hate it like whenever especially as i my schedule gets more filled i, I hate when i i have to invest like a couple hours just to get yeah. the first save like in, in, mm -hmm. in a kojima game you pro probably wouldn't be able to just play for an hour if you're starting out you're gonna have to set aside a few hours just to be able to get yeah. anywhere you could actually save your progress <laughs> So. Yeah, it's also it's also um, difficult to kind of define what like time to game is because game we refer to game mechanics like combat exploration mm. stuff like that. But for games like Pillars, for example, I felt when I played Pillars Two that the game started in the first thirty seconds because I don't know character if, creation. No, 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 no. Like when you like you walk you in Pillars Two, you start off as like a soul and like you walk up and you meet like you know characters. I've played like two minutes of that, I think, and then I got really busy. I feel bad because I love those old school RPGs. I played yeah. like two minutes. I just happened to be really busy that week, and I literally forgot to ever pick it up again. But I know the exact thing you're talking about, and yes, that is a meaningful decision. I would consider the time it to is. game. The time to game on RPGs, like classic style RPGs and strategy games, is usually very fast. It is. That's why I think I enjoy RTS and old school RPGs so much. Is because me too. Yeah. Like with pillars too, like you walk in and you immediately like the people, I won't say too much, hopefully to not spoil it too much, but the person's just like, Hey, why are you here? Why do you want to do this? I have this thing mm -hmm. for you to do. Are you going to accept it? And you have to accept it in the first five minutes of, and that that's what makes you go, okay, well, I guess these are the stakes. And then you're thrown yeah. into the world. And then when you're thrown into the world, it, you don't begin combat right away. You're introduced to like one of your main party companions. And then it's like, you get absorbed into that character. He's like, hey, mate, how you doing? And then maybe uh, five minutes after that is when you get your first combat thing. And mm -hmm. it's, but at that point, it doesn't have to be combat because then it gives you the game, well, the writers and the narrative designers give you this opportunity to be like, it, does this have to be combat or can this be resolved through diplomacy? Stuff like that. And I think that is a good hook and a good thing you're talking about of time to game. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I uh, I agree. Like it should have some sort of meaning, meaningful decision, not on rails movement, but some sort of do you know? Do I have to aim? Do I have to make a d dialogue decision? Do I have to search? Do I have to be you know notice something like something that actually requires some input output, not just you know pushing forward, not just you know pushing up on the analog stick or not pressing A to skip you know to, to just go through a series of dialogue because some. You know, I, I wouldn't consider an, an, a linear dialogue progression, just press A to continue to the next scripted, you know, dialogue. I don't think that's necessarily interaction. Yeah. They have some sort of choice, some sort of meaningful choice, whether, yeah. whether, whether it's, am I going to aim for the head or aim for the body? Or should I take a left or should I take a right? Or should I say yes? Move and don't no. die. 
<laughs> press X to not die. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff like yeah. That. <laughs> I mean, I guess I guess it's a slightly debatable with press X to not die, but I guess that depends <laughs> on the kind of game, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's the thing is it's not a fucking solid a hundred percent time to game is always a good metric. It's it's got a lot of wiggle room. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Exactly. It depends right. on genres, as we pointed out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, just to get on the next one because we could probably talk all day about that one. Uh, yeah. So I'll grab one from uh, Griffin Muffin here. Um, so you wrote uh, quests in some games becoming more explained and believable. Uh, mm. Want to elaborate on that one? Since you, you came yeah. So as as some of you may know, I'm currently working on a script for the Outer Worlds for one of my videos. Mm. And one thing I felt when I was playing Outer Worlds is the ability as a player to go to the quest giver. Why do I have this quest? Why don't you do it? And they'll give you some response of like, oh, well, I'm busy or like, oh, I'm testing you and stuff like that. And it's like, even though it's like, it's such an insignificant thing to have a dialogue option that says, why am I doing this? It allows the player such a, it's a freedom of agency of to be like, but why am I here? And in like, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's common in the last two Obsidian games I've played that the game or characters within the game themselves ask, why are you doing this? And it's such a good thing to do because a lot of RPGs back in the day kind of just took it for granted that you're going to hop into a game, you're going to do the quest and be the hero, mm-hmm. when it's like, but why? Why do you do this? You know, I, I felt that's a really good thing. I think it should be picked up more in terms of narrative design in the, in the RPGs that we have coming up. Yeah. That's pretty much the point. No, that's a great point. Um, I, I think a lot of games could learn from just overall just good narrative writing. I mean, uh, one of the strongest, uh, most important points of any any cohesion story is just uh, motivation. You know, mm-hmm. what's the motivation of this villain? What's the motivation of your character? Why is this person doing this thing? You know, how did this person get to this state to do this thing? I mean, some uh, you know, great some great examples from like non non gaming media. I think are, is a uh, you ever watched the Daredevil show from Netflix? Uh, yeah. Did it? Did it? Nope. Excellent. Nope. <laughs> I don't. It's, sorry. It's, I, it's the only show. TV I watch is wrestling. That's it. Okay. But you got the wrestling. But even, even wrestling, it's like you got the, you got the, uh, the heel and like, you know, you, they've got these long stories like, oh, you bested mm-hmm. me three years ago. Now I'm going to, you know, you know, get my revenge or whatever. You know, yeah. you, that, 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 that is a terrible recap of a wrestling story. <laughs> I wrestling, so there you go. But, uh, uh, well, I will, I will introduce you one day. It is my favorite form of art. Yeah, no, no I, I, I respect it a lot more than other. I've heard some like documentaries and things talk about it. But, mm. but yeah, I mean, like, uh, for example, just to use Daredevil's example, has an incredibly well-reasoned uh, and well-developed villain in that series whose motivations are very clear. So you always yeah. know why, uh, why he's feeling this way or why he's doing these things. And, and with video games, quite often you're just expected to be the hero. It's like, why are you saving this town? Because I'm the hero. Why are you killing this town? Because I'm not the hero. Like, you know, I, I, I agree with you in that explaining motivations and, and also hinting at repercussions. And I, that's one thing that uh, Oblivion, the Oblivion okay. Obsidian games uh, do really well is like they, they have a lot of morally gray uh, decisions where you may, uh, you know, do this thing with the best intentions, but you end up starving these other people because they took away their food source, or you might help, you know, group A, but group B suffers for it or things like that. And, you know, it, it is a little bit of like a, you know, kind of wrenching your, you, you know, tugging at your heartstrings, you know, for dramatic effect, but 
in in reality, almost every major action in reality does affect things in good and, and negative ways. So I like that the kind of there isn't a perfect solution for everything. I like that. That's kind of been a theme of some recent Obsidian games. I, I noticed that too. Yeah, definitely. The, the I won't say much, but definitely in Outer Worlds, what you talked about of like there's never a perfect solution is definitely there, and that's what what kind of kept me going with the story until the very end was like. I was at every point where it was a major decision. I'm like, what's going to happen? You know, usually in some RPGs, you kind of just go, oh, the guy asked to save his goat. You save his goat. You bring it back. And he's like, oh, thank you. You have my, my goats back. And it's like quest completed, you know? Just but, 50 gold and a ring. <laughs> yeah. Or you come back. But it would be so much more interesting. Like, you come back and the goat is actually like, I don't know, a demon in disguise and then morphs. And you're like, oh, I have to deal with this goat now that's now transformed into a demon. Stuff like that. It's these sort of like reversals and stuff like that to actually kind of keep quest design interesting. Yeah, I know. Uh, one good example, almost almost a carbon copy of what your example was, was in uh, one quest, I won't say the specifics, but in uh, Divinity Original Sin 2, quite often you'll be doing... Such a good uh, game. Yeah, great game. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the quests you'll do uh, the, the most er- earnestly do what you thought was best, but end up causing a lot of harm because of it because you didn't know something like you know for example a demon or you know that there was a reason mm-hmm. why you know that person was up there you know uh doing this thing and and not you know there's 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 repercussions for your actions and and you can I, a couple of those quests i'm like oh man i feel really bad about that because i i meant i didn't mean for that to happen but i caused all this all this harm and so yeah, there's a reason the fire slug queen was sassing me <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love that area no, no, it's great. Uh, there's just so much to explore in in that game, but uh, yeah, I could talk about God, so much. I love that. Not a spoiler, because it's in the first like 30 minutes of the game. You're at a fort where you're held kind of captive, roughly, and there's like a hundred ways to get into the castle you need to get into and then get out of the city, and that's like your whole first act of the game, basically. Yeah. There's like a billion ways you can do it, and it's so creative and so cool. I have like new game-itis when it comes to really good RPGs like that, where I just make new new characters, new classes mm-hmm. over and over. I'm like, what if I do it this way? What if I do it this way? And I, I love doing that. I've gotten out of that castle like a hundred different ways, and every single one I felt like such a goddamn genius when I did it. I loved every second of it, and I've not played anywhere past that because I have new game itis. Oh god! (laughs) (laughs) But I had a blast. What what was that, Griffin? Was that Divinity Original Sin you were talking about? Original Uh, Sin Two or another one? Original Sin Two. Yeah, two. Yeah. Yeah. This is such a good game. Four hours into it, and um, I had some trouble getting into it which is a, a funny thing because a lot of people were like, oh, you'll love it. I'm like, I'm having trouble getting into it, but I do really? remember. Is it Fort Joy you were talking about? Yeah, Fort about- Joy. Uh, that, yeah. that I loved that place so much. Yeah, hmm. you, can, you can easily spend like 10, 20 hours in the first act in Fort Joy and the second act. You only need to do about maybe 20, 30% of it. There's probably like 40 hours of, of optional activities in the second act alone. Like it's, there's a Jesus. lot to do in that game if you, if you really want to explore every, every, uh, nook and cranny but um did uh, i think uh, one thing that didn't help oh sorry oh go ahead i think one thing that didn't help for me when i was trying to get into divinity original sin 2 was the uh well i didn't i, th- I don't think i could i did made the right character that allowed me to really kind of i, I made like three different characters and i had trouble kind of feeling like yeah this uh, yeah i feel good i feel good when i play it but the tactics themselves like the actual combat I love like really tactical combat, and that's one thing that did keep me going with it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, it has a little bit of a runway. Um, I didn't get into it that much when I first played it uh, with some friends, but I I started again. And once you get past like the first couple hours, and the game starts opening up, you realize just how crazy open it is. Like it's it's a really even the tutorial island is like got a lot of different options, a lot of different things you wouldn't even notice mm-hmm. were there. It's it's got whole you know whole systems upon systems and things like that like you get arrested and put into the prison things like that like just the first first part of the entire game but um uh did uh, you have any uh thoughts on that soul purpose uh i did want to ask real fast about divinity original sin 2 did any of you beat that with uh multiple players oh lord no i'm 90 hours or beat it at all i guess i'm 90 90 hours into it and it's probably like two-thirds through the game so yeah it's it's okay it's if you spend the time, again, I probably put, uh, my fiance and I probably put like 60 hours into Act 2. You can probably uh-huh. get through Act 2 in about 20 if you are if you just kind of do the things you need to do. But um, again, what what's cool about Act 2 is that actually, not to spoil anything, there's so many different activities. <clears throat> and you, you just need to do like, I think, three of them. So whatever three you pick is up to you. So it, if you even do a quick playthrough throughout the game, you'll, you can choose other paths and you'll have a, a very, very different experience because there's whole other areas you, you may have, might have completely missed. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'd say you, roughly speaking, you'd probably f- finish the game about 40 hours if you just kind of quick, you know, 30, 40 hours. But uh, if you want, you could spend yeah. over 100, I think. Easily. Yeah, I had no idea. Cool. Um, all right, I'll grab actually one of your uh, your contributions, uh, Soul Porpoise. Um, so games that using uh, games that use their mechanics to help tell a story. So what what are some good examples from from uh, you on that? Like good games that uh, that do that either well or or poorly. Uh, yeah. So there are <laughs> a lot, and I think this is one of the design trends that I'm pretty optimistic about. Generally speaking, some of them a lot of actually a lot of games fail on this but the ones that are doing it well seem to be really like leaning into it um the one that i played most recently that like i'm i can't stop gushing about is uh the fallen order star wars game okay uh if any of you have played that it does that extremely well and i like i don't want to get too much into spoilers but like uh it it does star wars so well like it's it's something to the point like um where i'm getting a new perspective on it and uh it's making me rewatch the movies and like uh kind of view this from a uh, perspective like because i know i've talked about joseph campbell in my uh other videos um who did the research on the um the hero's journey and everything yeah and he talks about how star wars the original star wars was a really great like it, it does this perfectly and this is of course something that lucas studied and uh implemented in his original scripts um and yeah like it's uh it's about as accurate um a representation of the hero's journey along with like uh the struggles with the combat which i know um is difficult for some it's it's not too bad but it's definitely uh harder i'm trying very hard not to compare it to souls um and uh comments in this <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm sure they're calling me out um and uh yeah like i think that's part of it like there's there's a part where joseph campbell talks about how uh there is in the original star wars 
um a very like uh um sp specific call to like the samurai warrior and how that's embedded in the story and uh that's exactly how the game makes you feel it's uh you can feel that as part of the story and it's fantastic hmm. that's, well, that's good to hear yeah yeah i've been wanting to, to play and, it I, I love respawn and i think respawn has done nothing but uh pretty great games even if i don't necessarily play their battle royale i, re I at least respect that they made one of the best battle royale games and you know technically speaking everything but yeah they they, they do a great job and and uh bit of uh because i'm a i'm a just an absolute sponge for trivia their logo is actually um uh braille uh i think it's i think it's Bra the r i think or uh i think r for respawn and braille is their logo which um they they did that because they their game their game to philosophy is all about feeling uh you know they, they hmm. if you don't know hmm. they, they were the guys who basically did the best um the most successful initial most successful call of duty games modern warfare and modern warfare 2 those guys uh vincent pella and uh jason west i think um they did a really great job with those games and those games were so successful especially in console because of how good they felt they sacrificed a lot of things you know graphic fidelity resolution that game actually ran at sub hd um, but they did so many things to make that game buttery smooth, even on the 360 and the PS3. So they are all about hmm. getting that really, really good feedback and uh, gameplay loop and that feeling of gameplay, just the just the right, uh, you know, tweaking it just to, to feel just right. So I, I could definitely see how they could be. Uh, I've been wanting to make to make a fantasy RPG forever. I think they do an amazing job about it. And I, th I thought I heard something about that, but I think they uh, got given the Star Wars treatment, but. It's good that a, a really good Star Wars game finally came out because it seemed like uh, everything yeah. everything with this new EA deal kind of had some sort of horrible problem bogging it down. <laughs> they, they, it, yeah. Amy, Amy Hennig project, I was really disappointed. Yeah. They never got off the ground, which um, I'm sure that would have been pretty great. But Yeah, yeah, I have no doubt it would have been. Um, I've got an example, unless you guys have an example of a, a game that does mechanics, uh, story through mechanics really well. Uh, not at the top of my head, no. Yeah. Um, one that one that is kind of uh, uh, Total Biscuit used to talk about it a lot. Um, uh, but uh, it's one of those games that's really hard because to explain how it does it, you kind of have to spoil the best part of the game. <laughs> but uh, um, it, it is a really good, it is a really good job. I can I can describe the basics without spoiling too much. But uh, Brothers: uh, Tale of Two Sons, which. Uh. Is Terrible, terrible title, but a really good game. Have you guys played it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I vaguely know what it is. I've seen a little bit and stuff, and I've heard Total Biscuit back in the day rave on about how good it is. Yeah, it basically I've took the... to a video essay on it, yeah. Yeah, it, his, his favorite game, actually it was my favorite game, which was uh, the original Deus Ex, um, but he loved Brothers mm, so much that, good game. that that became his number one after he played it. The just wow. the thing is, uh, it's a game without any dialogue. It's all it's all just like in kind of smirk, kind of like Sims language, like made up language, and yeah. uh, and actions. Um, what was really cool about the game is that uh, I I don't know if you'd necessarily have the same experience on mouse and keyboard, but with controller, uh, right stick, right trigger, left stick, left trigger. Yeah. Uh, well, one half of your controller is one brother, the other half is the other brother. So you control two brothers at the same time. And throughout the game, you create this really great 
uh, kinship and kind of cooperation with yourself. It's like a co-op game by with yourself, basically. And you have to kind of make them work together. And because you're kind of fighting with like one side of your body and one other side of the body, you kind of have that sort of initial struggle. But then you your teamwork eventually, you can eventually do things with yourself again, you know, but it, you're, you're kind of developing it as a team and you're able to play the game better as you go on because you're you get more used to doing two things simultaneously it's a really great way of doing it and actually adds a lot of character and a lot of like that connection even though you're it's a single player game it you have that connection like as if you're playing with another person and uh anyway they develop that later on um in really interesting ways but one of the best ideas that the game has easily the best idea the game has is just how kinetic and how um uh, immersed you get because you're control literally controlling two different things at the same time so i don't know what the spoiler is or what they do later to develop that and thus you know yeah. create a, a gameplay through, I know what or a story through mechanics i don't know what it is so i'm just going to assume that at some point you get morphed into some kind of horrible chimera monster with your brother <laughs> exactly and that, that from yeah. then on the rest from then on the rest wow. of the game you're Sunday. playing it like octodad where like every button is a different limb and you're like just knocking shit over you don't need to say it i was right right you, you, turn, into, you turn into the guy at the end of a total recall where you have like a, a, a top body and then you have a little bite maybe at the bottom it's like Whoa, total recoil spoiler <laughs> <laughs> oh exactly. man, I'm unsubscribing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I spoiled a 1990 film. You know, it's it's. it's I yeah, actually it's haven't really seen it, but it's okay. I won't remember what you just said by the time Good I movie. watch it. <laughs> movie. Paul Verhoeven's the man. I'm actually covering him in my uh my uh, that movie in my next video. Oh, but oh, that's um, awesome. I can see that. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's definitely hard because so many things have been tried, but it you know it when you play it, where you're like wow, this game really handles this particular uh, story or um, theme of the game. It doesn't have to be storyline, but like the theme of the game. If the theme of the game is, you know, for example, a great, great example of that was Octodad. The, the theme of that game is how to not be awkward as a freaking octopus, you know? Yep. And the game nails that really well because it's impossible oh, so to do good. basic things. Like, it, you know, even just to, you want to drive yourself insane, do the two-player mode where one person plays half the octopus, the yep. other player plays the other half the octopus, <laughs> and even walking is a challenge in that game. So, no, uh, uh, it's it's mm -hmm. great, and uh, that that's why I think that I think we're going to see a lot of really great mechanics emerge in like game jams and indie the indie scene because they can yeah. come up, they can afford to just like waste you know a couple days or or weeks on just trying out ideas and and seeing what works, and I think that eventually somebody will nail something and maybe they won't get it hundred percent, but somebody will take that idea and say, Hey, we've got a much bigger way we can apply that idea. You know? Yeah. I think also with indie and game jams and stuff, you're not, you're not confined to making something that's going to be like, I, I'm not really sure of the result of game jam products, but I'm going to take a guess and say like, you don't have to like make them marketable and be like, Oh, let's sell them. They're usually just for the public consumption of people. If I'm correct, if, if that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's usually just for the competition, and I think some of them, exactly. they, get, they get, like, a, a bonus or, like, a small grant or something like that. Um, but yeah, sometimes... so you can make it, like, experimental and stuff, you know? You can try out new things without having, like, your whoever's in charge of the, of the money, so to speak, to be like, no, we can't sell this, no one will like it, you know? Yeah, yeah, with those things, there there is no, like, you know, board of investors saying, no, let's go with something proven, let's do a shooter that has these successful things. It's like, 
let's just do something cra- completely crazy and see if it, it sticks, you know? And so I think that's, yeah. that's kind of the new frontier of innovation is the smaller, more risky experimental projects that you can afford to try something completely unproven before. It reminds me of, um, I remember I watched this video about like work productivity and it talked about how at some software companies, they do this thing where like, I think it's like once a month or once a week or something, they just say to their software engineers, make your own thing, make it, uh, you'll be paid for it, like normal hours and stuff, just make it and give it to us by the end of the week. And that's it. There's something you think might improve the company. And they found that that was actually a big generation of a lot of new ideas. Like there's this unrestricted thing of like, go do what you want, you know? And they bring it back and be like, whoa, this is actually a really good idea. And it's like letting creative people give, like taking off the restrictions of creative people actually generates um, new, like completely novel ideas. Yeah, I I can totally see how that works. I mean, I I do some development, um, probably more of a graphics guy, but yeah, doing just, you know, do exactly this, 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 and this, and, and all detailed out, and you just follow those letters to a T, you become kind of a robot, even as a graphic designer. So when when somebody says, hey, I want this, just do whatever you want, it's it's really great to stretch the creative muscles or just think outside the box and do something different, and you kind of really need that, or else you're just going to be really just kind of, you know, running on fumes, uh, creatively speaking, or yeah, uh, if you're just if you're instructed to do every single thing you do, you just basically, you know, a pair of arms that, you know, somebody else is ordering around. So I could definitely see how that can definitely uh, squelch innovation. Um, Let me hop on to another point here. Uh, Sure. I think the the second, uh, the second uh, one that uh, you brought up on my dry bread um, games that put you into gameplay before it puts you on the main menu. So you don't get a chance to do your settings. So the resolution is wrong, <laughs> and, you're, and you're currently going to. Uh, okay, I get you mean. So games that. Uh, <laughs> oh, you're not going to read the whole thing word for word. Come on. <laughs> All right, it was cool in X Men Two: Clone Wars because that was 1995. Not a Sega It's not cool in 2019 on your ga- PC game that you just dropped eighty dollars Canadian on. So uh, I'm just I, curious what game this is now. <laughs> yeah, sounds great. What what X Men Two: uh, Clone Wars? It's this awesome platformer, uh, platformer action game on the Genesis where before it even shows you the Sega logo like they'd always do in Genesis games, immediately it drops you in gameplay. You're in like this winter wonderland fighting stuff as a random X-Men. You don't even pick yours at the very start. And your song changes depending on which, which one of the like eight X-Men you were given. And you do a whole, you do a whole level and then it gives you the the Sega logo and gives you the breakdown of the story and takes you to level two. And like no other game did that at the time, and it was the coolest thing. It's pretty avant-garde, yeah. Modern PC games kind of need an options menu where you pick your resolution, because I've never had a game natively understand I have a 2K monitor and not uh, a 1080 one. And so the resolution's always wrong, and so all everything on the other monitors are freaking out because I'm booting a new game, and I'm taking my headset off because I don't want to go deaf on the new game, <laughs> and then it decides to not take me to the main menu where I can go to the options menu and make myself not deaf and see things correctly, which is just fantastic. Thank you for that. I'm so happy that only AAA games do that, and the ones that I have to pay the most money for are the ones that respect me the least in terms of, it's a PC game, I need to do my options. <laughs> yeah, yeah. men did it better. Especially your PC, <laughs> like I, I feel yeah, I've got a, I've got a 1440p ultra wide at a very odd um, refresh rate. So yep. no game gets it right. 
you know, or are they force VSync and I've got a G Sync, so I, I need to turn off I need to turn off VSync. I need to set to fourteen, you know, three four forty by fourteen forty. I need to set to, you know, cap at a hundred frames per second. Yep. I need to set shadow resolution to under ultra because shadow resolution will absolutely kill my performance and all this other stuff and you know, and then sometimes you can spend a good, you know, 10, 20 minutes tweaking things and all kind of stuff. I'll, I'll yeah. also say that uh, uh, games that uh, have like benchmarks and, and ways to test your, your settings before you get into the game are, are great. Like I think uh, yeah. Ubisoft has actually been pretty ahead of the curve on that. They actually usually have a benchmark for the last few games I played with them. Um, WWE games have it for some reason. <laughs> that is random. But, yeah, uh, it's a weird it's a weird game to have it, but they have it. And um, I usually use DX Story. By the way, you can get that for free. Just all you need is the trial to do frame limiting. I use that to limit the frames in games, so I don't need to use VSync because VSync is a glitchy piece of crap. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it, it's it's always really tricky. But yeah, I mean, uh, I, I like the avant gardeness of kind of starting you in the middle of something before they, mm -hmm. you know, kind of cinematic where you before you do a cold open so to speak before you do credits or whatever but i think in yeah. modern piece of gaming where it's unfortunately that's a little bit too much of an ask because you may yeah. not you, it just doesn't know, work on pcs not really the most the best example i can think of of like you know what you said of like doing doing a bit of gameplay then the, the cinematic L legacy of kane blood omen yeah that did it if i remember rightly uh i just played on the that. ps1 i just played i didn't that. play it but that's the really? one with the in, that's the infamous line in the in the instruction manual about the grunts and poofs mean that kane is taking damage or whatever right there was like an early internet meme about that was it that so. game i think oh, so i can't I remember that game oh i'm a genius you see i pulled that one out <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm really i'm really disappointed in myself i literally live streamed the first four hours of that game like a month ago i'm not even exaggerating so uh i I saw you were playing Shadowrun. That was awesome, but I didn't have time to like hang out. I was watching it silently for a little while. It was cool. Yeah, I know Shadowrun <laughs> SNES was great. I, I want to play the Genesis yeah. now because uh, I've heard they're both really good in different ways. But um... they're very different. I I think it was the SNES one that was more of an RPG. I liked that one more. The Genesis one, if I'm remembering right, was more of a more of an action game. Yeah, the Genesis one is kind of remembered because it had a, a really good like cyber cyberspace mode. Where you go in and like hmm. hack in the matrix and stuff like that. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it does it pretty well. Um, so I, I want to dig into that because for my next video actually. But um, yeah, I totally lost track of what we're talking about. But um, oh yeah, yeah. The... That's okay. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I think you could do that. Like, here, here's my proposal: if you're going to do a cold open, have a cold open. But if you press escape, there's options menu. There you go. Yeah, I'm that, fine with that. That'd be fine. Do a cold open the first time you boot up the game before you have a save game. But if you press escape, have an options menu because that's the one annoying thing is if like you get into a game and there's something 3D or you know graphics related and you can't change the options yet. I, that's that's one thing that's always been really frustrating is that you're like not quite into the game yet and you see you can't change anything. You know. And it also um it also some people have problems with like in a, uh, this is. I'm not sure if it's 100% accurate, but there's some people who need to actually go into the settings for any game they play and like fiddle with the field of view stuff because yeah. it can cause them to be like motion sickness and stuff. Yep. And if you have that, that with a cold, yeah, with a cold open, like you can't change it, and people yeah. can get actually physically ill from it. It's so why I couldn't play Destiny One um, because I don't have, own a TV; I just have a capture card, and I got Destiny One for free with my PlayStation Four back when I bought it. I played mm -hmm. like 
I don't I don't like FPSs on controller in the first place, but I decided to give it a try because my friends liked it. And I almost immediately was sick to my stomach because the game had no FOV slider and I'm playing it on a monitor. So it's like right in front of me, even though it's a game yeah. probably meant for a TV across the room. I immediately wanted to throw up and I just couldn't play. And like I play a lot of I played plenty of FPSs. My channel used to be very payday two oriented. Uh, for quite a while, because I, I really, really like that game. Uh, so I can do super fast-paced whipping the camera around uh, FPS, but not not if it's super zoomed in, I can't. Um, so and so that's like a second? gameplay thing. I literally can't play that. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, uh, Sin Forgiver from chat actually brought up a good point I was going to bring up earlier. Uh, we used to have a lot of uh, launchers, which you could do like, yeah. a, it was just like a Windows uh, window where you could do like settings, like, you know, resolution, you know, basic settings and stuff like that. A lot of games like a even, lot of companies even, are bringing that back. Uh, they are. Stellaris has it. Uh, Bethesda, yeah, Bethesda, Stellaris was playing that yesterday. Bethesda never dropped it. There are certain settings you can't actually change while in game with uh, at least up to Skyrim and possibly Fallout 4. You couldn't even change some basic stuff in the in game. So some games <laughs> never dropped it, but yeah. <laughs> oh, it, God, it, Fallout 4. Yeah. It is kind of. I had nice. to go into the dot and I filed to fix shit in that. Oh, yeah, me too. Um, when I was playing it on my new monitor, I had to go in there and, and fix all the resolution and frame rate. Piece of crap. Yeah, yeah, they're particularly by the, uh, behind the times in terms of graphics options. Oh, but, and yeah. button remapping? You can't untie the melee button from the grenade button. So if the game legs, because it always does, yeah. it'll think you're trying to grenade with a Molotov at your own feet while you're in melee range. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And that is definitely a problem of... It's also on console, so they had to dumb down the controls, and they had no regard for PC players at all with that. That actually uh, dovetails nicely mm -hmm. into a point I had written down here, which is console-specific controls. Um, hey! I didn't hey. mean to segue. <laughs> segue. <laughs> I'll, I'll jump on it when I, when I see it. Uh, that's Man, I'm a genius. Um, my most immediate examples, I'm sure there's plenty of them, but uh, I, I know double uh, contextual button presses, which aren't always bad, sometimes are really bad where like the same button will do like five different things depending on where you are and sometimes you want to you know open a door but instead you activated dynamite or you know you want to pick up something <laughs> yep. and instead you swap your weapon with that thing you don't want or you know you want to uh, uh usually when you press hold on that button like hold yeah. does a different effect yeah and and honestly for certain things it makes sense like for example one of the common things and i'm actually okay with this is like uh tap a button to pick up Hold a button to swap, you know. Yeah, I can understand. Yeah, that. that's fine. That's totally fine. Yeah, yeah. that's but, fine. But when you're like activating things instead of like leaning against cover, or um, you know, there's been a lot of like really things that get you killed, you know, the, where it starts yeah. a long yeah. animation. You did not mean to do that, and you'll die. But one of the things yeah, that I, I go ahead. You're hitting E to get the spear you just threw out of that zombie in seven days to die. Instead, some door in your peripherals just closes and you just get mauled. That happens so often. Like, like you are directly on the thing and it says E and you hit E. Some door, you just telepathy. Thanks. That's what I wanted to do. I had that happen with Greedfall when I was playing on the PC. It would just be like, you know, you'd be near a door or something and you companion or something it's like you'll just like teleport to the door and be like and walk through yeah. like no no <laughs> i hate that so much yeah and and it's meant to make the game simpler but sometimes it makes uh just doing basic actions very difficult and uh, almost the reverse problem is like uh i don't know if you ever played battlefield um battlefield lets you uh 
double or triple bind certain keys. You can actually have multiple actions attached to a certain key. That can get really confusing, but I can understand why they have that option. So in case you do want to have contextual keystrokes or whatever, but that can get pretty weird. But uh, one of the examples that I, I immediately thought of was uh, um, like the lockpicking system in games like um, like uh, Elder Scrolls or Fallout, where you're like, you know, you, you move one arm and then you move the other arm and like pull it. And it's it's not the end of the world to do it with mouse and keyboard, but it's obviously designed for the the you know two two joysticks and and there's no real uh you know keyboard or mouse keyboard equivalent for that so you're just kind of like weaseling around with your <laughs> wasta keys and your mouse on oblivion yeah. it's really odd <laughs> yeah. I, remember, I was like, gonna say you, yeah you it's mouse like, controlled you isn't it you, you flick your mouth like you move your mouse up to like yeah. it's like it was such an awkward well, thing to do why really wouldn't they just do arrow keys for that like it there was yeah. no reason not to like i bet you there's a mod for that that's like top mod on all of uh all of the Nexus mod manager is probably making the lockpicking bound to like WASD or arrow keys because why was it ever bound to mouse? Like that's the that is one of the dumbest things I could think of to bind that to. Whereas in Skyrim, I thought it was perfectly comfortable with mouse and keyboard. Yeah, no, that was fine. The Skyrim, the Skyrim yeah. one was actually pretty nice. Yeah, well, no, I that's, that's fine. I never had an issue with to that. Complain about. Yeah. yeah, I recently played um, Alpha Protocol, and I think the lockpicking... Love that game! Uh, you know, it's got taken off Steam recently. Yeah, yeah I, I, I bought a copy beforehand, so I, I'm grandfathered in, nice. but yeah, you can't, buy it, you can't buy it off of Steam anymore. I, I think it was music licensing or something like that. I was, believe uh, it was. Okay. Same reason as uh, Alan Wake. Yeah. His music yeah, license I, I is expiring. Like, uh, we got warning on that one. I think like, there was a sale like, there was, yeah. off or something. I yeah. had no idea Alpha Protocol was going off, so I missed that. I know I didn't I didn't know till I looked recently. I, I went to go look at what the achievements were or whatever and it's like, oh it's you can't buy it anymore? That's a shame. Because like yeah. that game got that game got shit on pretty hard when it came out, but I always thought it was really fun. Like That's what I keep I, hearing. The first uh the first country of the game, like the first little act of the game, the stealth mechanics are kind of bad because it's based mostly around your bonuses, not around the base of it. And so it felt like you weren't it wasn't quite right. And so the people who liked it were usually playing a soldier, and the people who didn't were usually playing stealth. But once you get past the first uh, country, you know, you're only like one-fifth of the way into the game. And the entire rest of the game, if you're doing stealth like I was, because I like stealth games, um, it actually feels really, really great. I thought that was a fantastic game. And it had some of the absolute best branching decisions that actually impacted the entire rest of the game. And it was an Obsidian game, so I'm sure that won't surprise you to learn um, <laughs> that they know how to write certain... Like, there's drastic differences based on little dialogue choices you pick, and it's stuff that you can foresee in some way. And the only reason you don't see it coming sometimes is because you're so used to it not mattering in other games. And they do such a great job of that, of like, sometimes you don't want your handler to like you as much. <laughs> sometimes you want to be a dick to them a little bit, because they'll be less likely to compromise the mission if they like you just a little bit less. You don't want them to hate you. But like, just that little nuance of, it's the same reason why a doctor can't operate on their son. Of They're going to make bad decisions because they're too invested in the person. There was stuff like that implemented into the game. Like, it is so cool. Alpha Protocol is such a cool game. And so many people never got to learn how cool it was because it had this rough patch in the beginning of it. And yeah. so a lot of players and reviewers uh, didn't think much of it past that rough patch in the beginning. So... Ah, that yeah. sucks, because that game is I'm cool as hell. People, unfortunately. Go give it a try again sometime, because uh, well, it really I mean, is I great. 
If I can, if I will, if I can find it, I will absolutely. If, try. Yeah, I don't know if it's sold anywhere online anymore. You yeah. might need to. You might need that's to go search about. them sketchy websites. Yeah, that's the thing. I think totally legitly require it. I yeah, think, <laughs> I think it, no, don't quote me on this. I think if you have a legit key, you can activate it within Steam. You just can't buy a new key. Like if you were to get a, okay an unactivated PC key or something like that. Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't. I don't want to advocate G two A, but that might be the only way. <laughs> Uh, wow! Wow! The yeah. necessary evil. Yeah, I I don't want to advocate that. I I used to be partnered with them a long time ago. Then when they st when it came out that they were like using stolen credit cards and stuff, I yeah. immediately dumped it. I was making good money, but I dumped that because no, that's not cool. And they're doing it to this day, as far as I know. They never cleaned up their act. Yeah, and when, when people point out, you know how bad their system is, they get banned and stuff like that. Not not a not a oh yeah yeah nice company. Oh, they do they do a lot of scummy things. Like they they have reoccurring costs for things that you might accidentally opt into, and you're not allowed to opt out of the subscription service until the last day of every month, and they don't tell you that, so you always forget. It's awful. They do so wow. many awful business practices. Well, That's I was insane. I was going to point out, uh, uh, dry bread, you're uh, fantastic at segues because you. In digging into Alpha Protocol, you brought up another uh, another point. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a it's, it's both a, a, a it's kind of a negative, but you brought it, brought up the reverse of that, which is a positive. Is that the negative is bottlenecked endings? Like you know, I, I everybody yeah. everybody mentions the the meme yeah. the meme extreme is uh, Mass Effect Three, where you do all these crazy things that go super wide in the middle, and at the end, you got pretty much the same decision. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know the ending. I haven't played the Mass Effect series either. Yeah. Then a little bit of one and a little bit of two, and I liked them, and I want to play through the whole series in a row, but I've heard how legendarily bad the ending of Mass Effect 3 is to the point <laughs> that people usually refer to it as you pick your color of explosion, which That's I don't know what that means, but I'm sure I'll... <laughs> I, I don't know what that means, but I'm sure I'll laugh my ass off in like 200 hours when I beat the whole series. No, no, they're, they're all, they're all three. Uh, I can't really speak for Andromeda, but the first three are definitely worth playing even despite the ending but uh, yeah i'm sure it, they it, are it, it, i had a lot of fun with what little i played and, and what's what's really frustrating is that was one of the few trilogies that actually have a story progression and uh carry over your save game one game to the next so you're not only ending one game you're ending three so but it, it is frustrating not just not to get on the whole rank because mm -hmm. that game's been rented about for like 10 years but yeah games that have the appearance of a really really expansive uh storyline that branches out in so many different ways but in the end you're kind of down to just a all slightly varying versions of the same ending or basically the same ending but somebody else dies or whatever and it's 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 and i know why they do it because it just it's incredibly difficult to develop so many different you know ways of very different you know outros and and ending levels mm -hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff but at the same time it, it is one of those things that comes up again and again where a game branches out, but essentially it leads you back in, you know, thick in the middle, but slim at the end. Same uh, thing as, yeah. a, as um, you know, illusion of choice, you know, like they give yeah. you the, the means to do all this stuff inside the game, but the ending's always going to be the same. And it's really odd sometimes when these games get bottleneck endings, because it's like, sometimes these games don't have full on cinematics to describe their endings. They're literally just title cards of just like, you know, little image and just like, text or like a voiceover and it's like what would be the extra effort of saying okay let's have a neutral ending where this happens or we'll have like a slightly worse ending <laughs> where this happens and just have a guy do a voiceover like what is really the limiting factor in you deciding to do a bottleneck ending 
You know, yeah, it's... like Fallout 1 and 2, especially 2, did exactly what you're talking about so well, where it's they have modifiers of every city you've been to and different modifiers of if you, these different things happen, this is what will be the ending. And they show a picture of it and they explain what your impact on the world was. Yeah, that's so easy to do. And it turns out so great. And then do we all two rem- did this really well? There you go. Do we all remember the original vanilla ending for Fallout 3 where there's four? There's four. I held three. There's four. <laughs> and it's two. It's just a mix and match of two different things. Did you do the water purifier thing? And did you walk in or did you tell the lady you just met to walk in? And it's one <laughs> one line is the the Lord Wanderer learned many things. And one of them was sacrifices. He sacrificed himself to blah, blah, blah. Or alternatively, he learned many things, but one wasn't self-sacrifices. He told the lady <laughs> to walk into the blah, blah, blah. And the other one is he was a really cool dude and he purified the water and everything was hunky dory or he was a really bad dude, and he didn't purify the water, and there's no reason he wouldn't do that. That was the whole ending, and there was no post-game originally until DLC came out, because when DLC comes out, it's just like, change takes a long time, so you're back in the world now and you can keep playing. You know, like what Fallout 2 did many, many years prior? In vanilla, the game just ended, and you can't play anymore, and it's just like, you were good or bad. Yeah, Bye! Definitely. Having having absolute like moral absolutes for what like your decisions are in, in a in an RPG is kind of like it doesn't really feel like it's it's kind of a cheap sort of thing you know um, that's why a lot of people look to like Obsidian and they're like oh man they make like really in depth sort of RPGs and they do a lot of like morally ambiguous things and yeah but I think um, I think they it's, I'll speak only for pillars is that they definitely pull off the morally ambiguous sort of decisions and mm-hmm. a, a, a very multifaceted world in that game. Mm. That actually makes me think of Fallout 1, where in the <laughs> original development of Fallout 1, there was a quest line that's very major that was going to go very differently. So in the Fallout 1 that we all got, uh, there's a place called Junktown, and it's um, there. there's two warring factions in there. Uh, there's the sheriff and the sheriff's department and everything. Sheriff. And then there's a casino in, ca- in, in town called uh, Gizmos, I think, because it's run by Gizmo. Um, and he's this fat, evil guy who does, like, assassinations and stuff. So when you walk into town, you can either side with the sheriff and try to take down Gizmo. You, you catch him in the act of admitting to trying to hire a, a hit on the sheriff. Or you can side with Gizmo. And if you if you side with the sheriff and you kill Gizmo, then the ending is like everything was great and the city flourished. If you kill if you kill Kalian Darkwater, which is the sheriff, then it's everything sucks and Gizmo sucks. Um, but originally, what they were planning for the endings to be based on that is they wanted to be more ambiguous. Where if you kill Gizmo, then the ending would be the city's economy stagnates because Killian Darkwater, whose name sounds really evil, but he wasn't evil at all in the finished game, he ends up becoming really authoritarian because there's no one to challenge his rule. And the economy stagnates and the place never really grows. Whereas if you end up killing Killian and you side with Gizmo, he's really corrupt, but his casino expands, his business empire expands, jobs open up, and the city flourishes. And that would be the only time in the game where the obviously good thing and the obviously bad thing don't result in what you think that they would. But they didn't end up going with that, which yeah, is man, so I fascinating. Re- I remember reading about that. such a disappointment. Yeah. yeah, I remember reading about that um, where they felt it was a bit too much of a betrayal to the player, and so they decided to go with the obvious, you know, 
side with the sheriff, things go good, side with the, the corrupt, you know, gambling, whatever guy, things go bad. But I remember reading about that and, uh, I love Junktown. It was actually, uh, the Fallout 1 demo was actually just a, a snip, uh, a self-contained altered mm-hmm. version of Junktown. It was pretty great. Um, I'm just looking at a, another great example, uh, again, by Obsidian, um, Fallout New <clears throat> Vegas had one of the most notoriously, uh, variable endings of any game. Really. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at it now. Um, there's 20, 29 slides and some of these slides, uh, it, it kind of stitches together an ending out of 29, uh, with 29 steps. And each one of these slides, like one of them has, uh, 11 alternates of that one slide. Yeah. So you can, yeah, you like can, some are very, very specific. Like yeah. who was even the Caesar at the end of the game? Because you could end up killing the one that was in charge. And that drastically changes yeah. so many of the outcomes because a new guy who's a total warmonger takes over. That changes every single ending, no matter who you side with, because one of the biggest factions in the whole game has a different leader. Yeah, I mean, mm. it, you can just do the math and you see with various different versions of each slide, you can see hundreds, if not thousands of different versions of the ending i mean it's it's and again Mm. that's probably easier to do than to animate in an incredibly elaborate cutscene that only happens one way or the other i'd rather have something that reflects my actions rather than exactly have something that's a bit prettier Mm -hmm. and yeah yeah. i want to feel like i made an impact on the world and not because the game funneled me into being the chosen one like i always thought being the chosen one in the game is kind of lame i want to i want to be in a world that doesn't care about me and i make it care which is kind of what fallout is like as although you're literally called the chosen one in fallout 2 you're the chosen one who only is a celebrity in your crap little tribe as soon as you go in the the rest of the world no one likes you and a lot of people are pretty racist towards you because you're a native <laughs> like you don't mean shit in the world outside of your tribe the fact that you're called the chosen one is almost like mockery of you because you couldn't matter less you matter because of your actions that you go out and do in the world and, and you, this, oh you go oh sorry like i i apply this whenever i um i dm in D. like nice. whenever the whenever the campaign ends i always kind of go through what the catalog what players have done and i'm like which one really did something that affects the world. I'm not talking about like they killed a dragon or like they killed X or they solved X puzzle. I'm talking about things that actually affected people. For example, in my last campaign I did before I left um, from Perth to Melbourne, um, there was a moment where um, one of the characters was a wizard and he was having a chat with some of these uh, children in a village and they asked him, you know, doing it. I'm like, What's what's it like being a tiefling? And he tells him they tell he tells them what being a tiefling is like. And he like goes like, oh, it's a very oppressive place in the fire planes and all this sort of stuff. And from that, I'm like, that's a really good thing that you did thinking in my head. So at the end of the campaign, I told him how like you telling that story to those children allowed those children to grow up with a different mindset of for tieflings. So whenever hmm. they met tieflings, they understood what it's like to be a tiefling. And then the other person on the side of the table went, went like, what about me? What about my accomplishments? I'm like. You just hit stuff. <laughs> no, I didn't say that, but I said, yeah. like, you know, like, you know, I tried to say, oh, you did this and that, but pro- that was only because of the prompt. But seeing that sort of thing is something that a lot of people, players in tabletop or, dig- or digital games, need that sort of feedback, I reckon. Yeah, it's one of the most frustrating things is uh, when you, bi- you build a specific type of character in an RPG and nobody notices that. They're just like, uh, hello, traveler. You know, it's just like, 
the most generic uh, greeting or they don't notice anything that you look very crazy or you're a different type of, you know, odd creature that shouldn't be here or, you know, mm, you've, yeah. you're a really notorious Adelope does criminal. that a little bit. Like they do stuff like, or if you're intelligent, you, they're spoken, you, people speak to you like, oh, you're mm. a sharp one and stuff. But if you're dumb, they're like, the hell? Why did you say that? Yeah, that was an old thing Fallout 2 did. And in fact, I think think that uh, New Vegas did it, Fallout 2 did it, because they're both Obsidian. I'm sure uh, Outer Worlds, was that what it's called? Uh, yep, the new one. I'm, I'm. I have. I have. I haven't played it yet, but I'm sure it does the same thing. If your intelligence is really low, people will catch on really quick that you are literally mentally handicapped, <laughs> and some people will treat you quite nicely based on it. Other people, especially, I know this specifically thing in Fallout too. To barter with people, if you have low enough intellect, you will literally hand them your purse and. When you barter, they will just take out as much as they're supposed to get. A lot of people will rip you off because they understand wow. that you aren't going to be doing the math. They will steal from you. Whereas there there are people that you can communicate better with uh, because you are mentally handicapped. And I think it's a gag more than anything. But the the tribal guy who sounds really dumb near the beginning of the game in the first like regular town you go to, yeah. if you have less than three intelligence and you talk to him, then you are talk. You just talk in like a native language or something, and in parentheses you can see what translates to in English, and it's like co- comedically regal talk. Yeah, I remember and like, that. and you can do like an elaborate quest line with them, where it's like, "How do you do, my good man?" But the yeah. thing is, also with with all these complex the com- the complexity of like adding an intelligence factor to your dialogue. One thing that kind of blows me away is the extra amount of work narrative designers and writers have to factor in to yeah. incorporate that into the game like they have hard to, to go through every single decision that you make and go dumb decision neutral intelligent and yeah. that's that's mind-boggling you know that would be crazy to turn it right but then again they are doing it as a job so yeah <laughs> yeah you would have the time it requires yeah. a, an extreme amount of uh putting your you yourself into different shoes and writing out different responses and stuff yeah mm-hmm. i remember that uh I, yeah, another example I had from Fallout 2 actually is I was my I made a character that was so dumb that he couldn't explain uh how what he wanted to a mechanic, so I couldn't actually fix the car and not even actually even yep. get the get the car for the game, so I was kind of screwed to walk on foot for the rest of the game. I really have to play Fallout 2. Well, uh, it's so, <laughs> I I beat it every I replay it every year. It's so good, yeah, and wow. the restoration mod for it that adds all the cut content back in is so good. Yeah, another that game that has a lot of that too, uh, made by the, some of the same guys as Fallout, uh, Arcanum is it a really, really deep system. They not only have um, intelligence, uh, they have charisma, but they also have beauty as well, a physical, a physical. Sorry, attraction. what was the name of that one? Arcanum. Uh, oh, it yeah. was uh, by Troika Games. Uh, they have a lot of really, really good dialogue options there. They also have the, uh, I think they call it the Idiot Savant or something like that. Uh, where you, oh, I didn't you, know this was speak. made by them. Gog tells me to get this like every hour of every day. I'm actually no, going to get it now. You just you just sold me on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say the combat is a, it, it is probably its weak point, but if you have the patience to get through it, um, I have the patience for everything. My favorite game is uh, Deadly Premonition. Oh God. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I I did a I did a 100 let's play of it on PC. Like yeah. I I can fix anything, man. I I have the only let's play on the internet of Kotor or sorry of uh not Kotor. I was just playing Kotor yesterday. Kanung Legend of the North, which is like a 1996 Russian Eurojank game. Oh, no. And I think I'm the only guy to ever let's play it. It's the hardest to record game I've ever found in my life, and I found a way to do it because I can fix anything. 
That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to program, but I can fix anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you can get old games to run, you're basically qualified to be an IT professional at this point. So, <laughs> hell yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it, the games that really kind of notice your character, I, I, I really appreciate. Uh, yeah. You know, um, at, like, for example, Arcanum has a really complex, it has, it has a, uh, I don't remember the exact name, but it, it's a um, uh, reaction modifier, which is based on what you're wearing. Uh, which race you are, how beautiful nice. they are, how, what their charisma is, and everything like that. It's all done in the back. And so your current state, how well you're dressed, uh, your race, your charisma, your beauty, and everything is calculated, and how well you speak, it, it affects uh, sure. reactions greatly. Like one character can have at least like six or six to eight different reactions, depending on your, your stats. So uh, That's some, awesome. Some random blacksmith in the first town, like, Pretty pretty cool stuff if you really dig in dig in deep. But um, yeah, games that really notice your character are pretty great. Um, I don't have a good segue yeah. for that. But, to um, anyone watching who might cool. be sold on the game based on his description, by the way, is currently cheaper on GoodOldGames.com than it is on Steam. I'm buying is. it right now, but PayPal will not load. What the hell's going on? <laughs> Come on. Uh, just, just to touch on that uh, idea, um, I was listening to a podcast, uh, ScriptLock, where they talked to people who make narrative for games um and they were talking to uh uh one of the um narrative designers for uh the um the walking dead games yep. and she was explaining that what she would what they would do to anticipate player reactions is because uh, this is obviously a, a less uh stat driven kind of game it's more of based on your decisions but they would anticipate the character reactions or the player reactions um based on just dungeon mastering themselves and kind of playing a game and seeing what you know what they wanted to do in a certain situation and uh yeah it's, it seems like a brilliant solution to a very difficult problem in solving uh having the game react to what you want to do yeah yeah i mean some games do it a lot more um uh scriptedly where they just have like a branching path and there's just it's just a a bunch of lines connecting to other boxes and stuff like that. That's more of a telltale way where they just have this equals that equals that. And it gives you those options. And as long as you think of almost every logical uh, progression, that's great. And then other games have more of a systems based uh, calculation where once you've reached a yeah. certain threshold, these new options open up and things like that. Now I, I kind of tend to lean more towards systems rather than very specifically defined paths. Cause otherwise you have to really think through absolutely everything and create these complex paths. Otherwise it's like, unless you specifically tell this person this one specific thing, you'll never get that option, which I always find kind of frustrating. Cause I think that there's many different ways to convince, there should be multiple ways to convince people. There should be like multiple avenues you can take to get in good with somebody. You shouldn't have this one specific option, but it's, yeah. just, a, it's just a style of design and philosophy, but uh, either way is great. If it's done well enough, I, I, I like the telltale style where, you know, so and so will remember that. And so later on when, you know, this you have to have uh, you know, this particular requirement to be able to convince this guy or talk this guy down from something, you know, and you didn't you weren't nice enough to him earlier. That's a that's a cool system, but you know, it, there's lots of different ways. I'm sure people will think of new ways to do it too, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's some if you could, that... you could segue into a multifaceted diplomacy if you wish, but maybe you want to move on with something else. Multifaceted diplomacy. That sounds really intelligent. Segways are lame. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was gonna, I was gonna pull up another one of Soul Porpoise's uh, uh, ones because sure. we've been talking over him uh, this whole time. So. Yeah, of course. No, you're yeah. fine. You're fine. 
so uh, uh, progress gates. So progress gates being used multiple times after we've uh, we already have access at a certain point. Okay, so you're mm. talking kind of like the Metroidvania style thing where there's a certain type of door or uh, yeah. barrier that you can get through, but once you've once you've uh, attained that ability, they keep on recurring. Would you consider that a good thing or a bad thing, or what was your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it's driving me nuts. Uh, this is something that uh, to criticize the Fallen Order, uh, it does the same kind of thing, like where it will make you earn a certain skill, and then uh, you'll get past the barrier, like when you go back to it, and then beyond that barrier, will have the, the a chest locked by the same skill. It's like, why are you making me do this? It makes the whole <laughs> thing perfunctory. It, uh, it's just, it's, it's not. It's something that's driving me nuts, just because I've noticed that games are still doing it. It's not like a, uh, a skill. Like I, I think if you do have a Metro Metroidvania mechanic where it requires you to take a risk or yeah. use MP or something like that, um, then absolutely. But like, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm there are definitely more uh rabid resident evil fans than me but once you get past a certain area with the uh with the the heart key or whatever or the diamond key you don't have to access another door with the diamond key again correct um i mean that'd be kind of a i don't time. remember okay <laughs> yeah, yeah, well yeah, that's but... that, that's my Sorry. understanding that's the best, best of my memory if i'm wrong please tell me i but, like... think you're right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm... it's okay yeah. i've only played like all of them. <laughs> I, I, recently played, I recently played the RE2 remake, and I don't remember uh -huh. needing a. Uh, I, the same I actually time. haven't played it yet. Yeah, you haven't played like, RE2 cross and you and you call yourself a Resident Evil fan. <laughs> my my, my, my <laughs> favorite Resident, Resident Evil, Evil. was announced. How dare you? My favorite Resident Evil. I think the best one, kind of two. The second one's kind of an expansion. Is uh, Resident Evil Outbreak and Outbreak File Two are amazing games. Right. They were they're PlayStation 2 online games, so the servers aren't up anymore, but they emulate perfectly and there are online servers still hosted by hardcore fans. You just get the Japanese version, get the English patch. It wasn't released in, it was released in English, but the Japanese version runs better, so that's what people use with an English patch, and it is the coolest game ever and you can play it online with people and i i let's play both of them i did multi-cam let's plays with my that's fancy editing yeah it's pretty obscure and stuff. it's you gotta play them they're the last tank control ones they ever made before resident evil 4 came out and i like 4 for its own thing I, I, yeah i have a, i have a hard time calling it a resident evil game just because in resident evil you like you control and you're like scared of things and in resident evil 4 the first thing i did was leap out of a two-story building through a glass window <laughs> tuck and roll and then roundhouse kick it roundhouse kick it like a 200 pound man about six feet yeah. through the air he rolled on his neck and got back up and i kept shooting him like so i don't know if i'm gonna call it a resident evil game it's the game's awesome as hell i let's play that too but resident evil man those games are awesome <laughs> So you're saying uh, now that we're completely derailed uh, this point with Resident Evil, you're saying that uh, Resident Evil Six with uh, the jump kicky guy is your favorite of the series? Then yeah. now I, I did let's play that as well, and let me tell you when people talk about Chris's campaign being the worst thing in the world, boy howdy, they were right. <laughs> that, whether, that game uh, was horrible. Uh, Chris's is just like a bad Gears of War campaign, but um, the other guy was arguably worse uh the 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 melee focus jake? Guy with, yeah jake's like jump please the stuff. coolest character jake <laughs> he kicks a lot he kicks zombies in the head 
<laughs> I, I actually liked the. I legitimately liked Leon's campaign in six, but that was the only good thing about that whole game. I think. <laughs> I uh, five was fun with a friend because anything is fun with a friend. Yeah. Uh, I I let's played. I, I'm like the only guy I know who actually beat all of Ride to Hell Retribution twice because it lost my save file at one point because that game is awful. Um, <laughs> that was fun because I laughed at it with a friend. Anything could be yeah. fun with a friend. Chris's campaign was not that fun with a friend. No, no, that's like... that's next level bad. Like I can't think of much worse. That's pretty bad. <laughs> Yeah, there's the, that could go on a whole conversation, but yeah, RE6 is pretty much, you know, universally agreed on is not great, but uh, to get back to Soul Purpose's <laughs> uh, point about, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, like like on you were saying, uh, you know, like I, I keep on thinking of some game, it was either like a Zelda or maybe it was Dark Souls or something like that, or not, uh, sorry, Darksiders, or I think you, or I think you get a, a, a gauntlet and you can like smash rocks or whatever. And oh, I see, yeah. Some game like that, something like a, a smashing rock gauntlet or whatever, right? You smash yeah. a rock, and you're like, okay, now I open up this new area, right? Then why do you have to smash fifty other rocks in that area? You've already done that. You've already passed that barrier. Yeah. Unless there, exactly. Like, there's that's, some that's sort exactly of, it. Unless there's some sort of skill element, like you know, oh, I have to kill guys with a smashy rock thing or whatever, or right. there's some or do what Zelda does, and like you had uh, you puzzle. lose a bomb or something. Yeah, like there, there has to be risk associated with it. If you're just switching weapons and then, you know, destroying something, you, you don't have to make me do that again. It's okay. I don't. Yeah, I'll yeah. Pass. Like if you had to equip the red key to open up a red door, and then behind that red door are fifty more red doors. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's like yeah, okay, I, really? I get what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Sole purpose. I I, yeah. I get that, and it it reminds me, of course, like of God of War, how like you know you would get you have like your Lothian, Le Leviathan axe. And then when you get the chaos Spoiler blades, you're like, oh. <laughs> you go back, you um, yeah. but uh, going back through, and you're like, oh, that thing that was entangled before, I can chop that to bits. I think in those instances when uh, you go, oh, okay, like you, you're going through the game originally, and you notice things, it's like, well, why can't why can't I get that? It has to be a, a little bit less obvious, you know, like it can't just be like, oh. A, 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 like a, a rocky wall that looks like it has cracks in it. You're like, I could smash that later. I just have to find mm. the artifact for that first. I think when it has give, giveaways like that, and you get that item, and you go, oh, okay, I can go back and smash that brick wall. It, I don't know. It, you, like, it's been what, like, twenty years or so since that's been used. I think we can start to kind of evolve it a little bit. Is yeah. maybe what I can add to that as well. Yeah, God of War was one of my uh, the, the games I had in mind. I just didn't want to say it, considering. <laughs> no worries. Uh, Griffin, 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 Griffin Muffin's like sharpening his knife behind the scenes. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to know no, no, we've already had it. a discussion outside of this, and we were politely discussing. Yeah. Hot take. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's yeah. If there's some sort of challenge, a risk, or puzzle element, I think it's okay. But if it's just literally just pushing a button that you've already pushed before, and yeah. surpassing a gate that you've already surpassed, I mean, the whole point of it. The whole point of having different uh, instances of this gate is to block you off from like other areas, right? But once you've surpassed that one gate, you shouldn't have to do it again necessarily, unless there's some sort of challenge element. I think because otherwise, it's just redundant. If there's no, if it's just yeah, using that item again. I mean, what a lot of games do. I think Metroid kind of innovated this in some ways is that they combine that item or that ability with a weapon, so it's not completely useless. You know, you can eat, 
you can use your mm-hmm. red missiles or your green missiles in Super Metroid, and they're both uh, e- uh, different, effective, and differently effective at fighting as well as getting through doors. Then again, once you've gotten through like one door, do you need to really go to the next? I've not, I've not played Super Metroid for a while, so I don't remember exactly like if you had to get through a green door and then another green door and then another green door. I think yeah. they're fairly logical in that you're not going to necessarily have to go through multiple layers of the same type of door. I think it's just getting yeah. to different pockets of that of behind that type of gate. But I, yeah, I've played also on the Switch through. now if you want it. Mm. Oh yeah, it is actually. Yeah, yeah, it's I've, really I've, cool. I've I think actually also recently. the best thing to kind of make the Metroidvania style sort of game mechanic like of oh you require X you can now smash Y is to actually make it um it's not really that much of a difference and not like groundbreaking but Batman Arkham games did stuff where it's like oh you got freeze grenades you can throw the freeze grenade in the water and it makes a platform or you can throw them at steam vents mm. and it freezes them like to have different avenues of being like I could do this or do that with this X weapon. Yeah. Kind of branches out a little bit more. It doesn't really, you know, change it too much, but it makes it a little bit more interesting rather than just X weapon does Y in the environment. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, you had a, you were saying something uh sole purpose, I think did you get cut off there. Or... Oh, I was just going to I was just going to say uh, I've played through Metroid or Super Metroid pretty recently. Um so much so that I'm willing to say I'm pretty confident it doesn't give you the same colored doors after you have already passed that point. Yeah, I, okay. I, th- I think it, as far as I remember, there it's just different pockets of that behind that gate and different areas of the world rather than just layers of the same gate. Yeah, I, I think exactly, which is fine. Like, yeah, I, I think it's great to make you kind of like take note of a certain door color or something like that, and then having to come back to it. But you know, once you passed it, it's over. Stop it. Yeah. Yeah, I actually like the idea of having more versatility where like you're kind of now thinking of different ways to use your ability. Like obviously back in the SNES, that was incredibly groundbreaking and and very interesting and very kind of like cutting edge. But now that we've developed, you know, decades of games since, you know, maybe we could think about having different uses that you kind of figure out of that of that particular item. Like maybe you can you know, do like a reflection shot and hit something behind a wall or Mm. Kind of mix it up a little bit, yeah. so not just doing. Oh, this is obviously green. Use the green thing on the green thing and get through the door. Like that, that's once you figure it out, once you kind of you kind of know it. But um, Super Metroid, I remember doing a lot of things because, and they actually they combine things too. They use like you, for example, you you may have the super bomb, but you may not have the scope yet, so you can't look through the the floor and see that one spot that has a super bomb yet. So you're without knowing that there's that. Uh, that one square that can be destroyed by a super bomb, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have used it there necessarily. So things like that, kind of layering yeah. abilities on top of other abilities, that's an interesting idea. And you know that was pretty groundbreaking for the time, but you don't really see too much of that now. It's pretty obvious. It usually has like a games usually have like a scrape or you know something, uh, some sort of mark that's pretty obvious or a color that you know yeah. is color coded. So. <laughs> Um, all right, I've got plenty more here, so let's try to burn through some more uh, points. Let's see. Um, one I actually brought up with my friend today, uh, Souls-like game mechanics. Um, this isn't necessarily a... a uh, I, I guess you could say it's a little bit annoying in some cases where games just get compared to Dark Souls repeatedly, but uh, essentially, yeah. essentially what people mean... <laughs> Who would do that? <laughs> Who would do that? But essentially <laughs> what they mean, though, is like high, high skill, uh, high difficulty... Um, 
games with cut some sort of consequences for dying or losing. Like I've even heard of uh, some racing games taking on these mechanics. Like I think uh, Need for Speed Rivals or whatever had things like that, where like you could you could rack up a certain modifier, a certain score or whatever, and, and but if you get caught by the police, you lose all that. You know, you can pretty much apply it to any sort of game. It doesn't say have to be a, a Souls like game or a Soulsborne game, but um what are your guys thoughts on that like is it gone too far is it do you like how it's going i mean <laughs> star wars is probably the mo- one of the most recent examples of that where it kind of takes that, yeah that elements which is what like i'm i'm desperate to to leave it out of the conversation just because i don't want to get yelled at by the internet but <laughs> um with that said i do think like uh this is kind of going back to the original point that i was making with it like <clears throat> To I, I think uh, it was Jim Sterling who made the the point that it should have been rather than a Souls like game, a uh, Devil May Cry style game where you get these different abilities and you get to just kick ass and go crazy on it. Um, I think the way that uh, you described it with the high difficulty or high skill high difficulty, I uh, I think it really lends itself to a game like Star Wars. I think Star Wars definitely loses loses it at a certain point. Um, and just goes ham on a, like a really stupid aspect of it. Uh, it didn't ruin the game for me, but uh, I do think that like if that's the kind of game that you're going for, it definitely helps communicate the story if it's if it's done right. Yeah, it creates an instantly creates a, an oppressive world that you can't take lightly. Like it wouldn't, I, yeah. I wouldn't want a Mario souls like game where you're like every koopa is like secretly stomps you and, and you die and you lose all your coins and are you like, saying you're not curious because <laughs> i'm curious look if a mario souls game came out i'd be really fucking curious yeah. they made sure. an xcom game they i'm curious an, they did make a mario xcom game they made, they made mario racing games they've been mario like, all sorts of games is anything off the table I, I apparently not, but um, I mean, they made they basically like I'd argue that Zelda Breath of the Wild is kind of like light souls like uh, mechanics. They really made the combat, yeah. Uh, if you play the game, it's got um, blocking, dodging, uh, pretty, pretty beefy and pretty hard combat mm. at times, honestly, uh, for a, a Zelda game. And uh, it does have it has a fairly broken armor system, but other than that, the actual core gameplay, you can definitely tell that they took some inspiration from. Uh, I would say some from the Dark Souls genre in terms of the difficulty, not necessarily the the consequences for losing, but definitely the skill and difficulty type combat. Is you can't just button mash. You have to dodge. You have to roll. You have to block. You know, you have to you have to uh, reflect certain things at a very specific time, or you die instantly. <clears throat> yeah. So, um. But yeah, it, it's I I I like that it's. I mean, it's basically like I, I would actually say if you want to go back, you know, really far back and just kind of say what it is. It's basically remember NES hard, like you play the NES games. And it's like oh, yes. games NES hard, like the Nintendo Entertainment System had some incredibly hard games, like uh, Ninja. Yeah, Biden, I grew up with that. Um, Contra Journey to Silius. <laughs> yeah, pretty that much. That was oh, good. Yeah. Almost every game. <laughs> you know, that's coming out on Switch in a few days. Oh, yes, it is actually uh, some of the Dude. best soundtracks on the console. Yep. Damn yeah. right. No, that's originally <laughs> going to be a Terminator game, which is why the boss is like the Terminator. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's it's it, it's almost it's kind of annoying to say like dark, when people kind of say Dark Souls made games hard and it's like games were hard, 
they got all, right. they got a lot easier and then they got hard again but yeah uh it, it, i do like how that particular system where you know everything's not a pushover you can actually be challenged you can actually die pretty easily and if you die there's consequences you'll lose something or you have the risk of losing something and it basically what it does is it just gets you invested in, in living and, and getting good and, and surviving because a lot of games just kind of bl- one scene blends into the next because you're generally winning. Occasionally you'll run into a hard part, but you can just restart. Dark Souls, not so much. Yeah. If you die and they die again, you lose all your progress. <clears throat> you lose a lot of progress. So, uh, yeah, I think it was a, a net positive as long as it's not just overdone or done poorly. Like uh, some games try to emulate Dark Souls so closely, but then one of the one of the things that's uh, a big problem with games like that if you do if you do the difficulty and the style of combat of dark souls but you have bad animations like one are we talking uh go ahead yeah but like like you know what one factor of dark souls combat is being able to is the tells like just to be able to see that movement oh that guy's about to swing or he's about to do his like spin attack just being able to that split second of oh he's going to do something that i can i now have to react to in a specific way if you have bad animations that don't have enough of a tell or have tells that are too similar or uh you know whatever your animations don't have enough of a time to to properly react to them that can be bad like i i don't i don't think that was it lords of something or other that that was lord of the fallen yeah that one wasn't as good yeah. for that but um things like neo were pretty great they did a, the dark souls formula pretty well so mm-hmm. lords of something or other <laughs> That's a winning title. <laughs> I mean, it's a very uh, forgettable <laughs> title to begin with. That's on them. Yeah. All right. I'd um, buy it. I'd buy it. Or is this something <laughs> or other? Uh, cool. Well, I've already done both of yours, uh, my dry bread, and one, one of them was the, uh, exactly the same. I as made mine, two. So. Yeah, one of them was exactly the same as mine. So. Uh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. I just worded it funnier. I worded it funnier, and then you didn't read it word for word. So, what was the point? Oh. <laughs> Podcast room. I'm a comedian. Why did you bring me on? <laughs> You've been telling me, you're like, hey, we're going to do this podcast. We do the podcast now? It's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I've been telling uh, you that I want to do just anything together for like two years, and then you get me on for like <laughs> serious talk. Of course, the chat's gonna be mad at me because I'm goofing on everything. I'm a comedian. No, no it's, it's great. Uh, I'll grab one of uh, Griffin's ideas then. Let's see. Uh, realism traded for storytelling, focusing mm. on the hyperrealistic graphics and explosions, pew pew, and a high grade mocap to tell a mediocre story. Uh, so you've got some beef with Mortal Kombat 11. I, I have I, a little bit of beef. I kind of gave up after, after 10. I did like 9 a lot, but I haven't played 11 yet. Um, so what, what's your what's your thought process behind that? With Mortal Kombat 11, I felt that this... Yeah, okay, so the mocap is brilliant. It captures all the emotions, everything like that. It's so, so hyper-realistic with how they move, and it's just beautiful to watch. But it's essentially Crisis on Infinite Earths, but in Mortal Kombat. Mm. And it kind of comes across as a little bit just there's there's some cool stuff to do with like what happens with the game but it kind of feels like the story was made just so they could have a premise for the game i'll be like oh we need characters from multiple timelines and also like different outfits and stuff 
So let's make a story where there's a crisis of infinite Earths so that can happen. You know, it, it, it very much felt like a story that was made for the convenience of actually selling the game itself. And um, there's been a few channels that have critiqued some of the uh, story developments with some of the characters, uh, a lot of like the back, like, you know, talking like 20 years of history for characters. And then just Mortal Kombat 11 is like, no, no, we're scrapping that because we need this character to be like this. So it could be more like more approachable and stuff like this, like having that sort of, yeah, I have, I have beef for that for that reason. And, um, but more to the hyper-realistic thing, like, well, we, I think we've discussed this before on like Twitter and stuff, how like hyper-realistic worlds can be traded for like having more grounded, more of refined stories rather than simple cookie cutter stuff. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And also, uh, one, one aspect I think actually, uh, being too realistic graphically can actually be harmful if you're, if everything else isn't quite up to snuff, like, it, uh, not to bash on our boy Kojima, but, um, he tends to have pretty cutting edge looking <laughs> games, but his scripts are fucking bonkers. Like it, like you, 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 the stuff he imagines is just absolutely insane. Like I've, I watched a few hours of his latest game. Um, he's probably going to win game of the year awards for if current trends are going on. But, uh, <laughs> you know, think, think of what the game of what you will has some pretty silly, crazy ideas in it, you know, but the fact that he, so my he, wife, uh, my wife's really big into that game and stuff. And oh, I, death training. Yeah. Yeah. So I heard her watching the cinematics and stuff online. And occasionally I just hear this like murmur from the next room. The fuck is going on? <laughs> <laughs> and even in context, you're like, okay, this is a bit weird. You know, like it, it's got some weird stuff in that game. And, but because it I looks, love that stuff, it looks so real, <laughs> like, like pretty real for a video game. Like they do some really good mocap and they bring in real actors and real, some of the actors are actually no directors and stuff like that. And so it looks uncomfortably real. It's also got a little bit of the uh, uncanny valley in there too, just for good measure. But um, because it feels so real, you're now, you're now in like movie territory. So if you're using like Japanese anime level dialogue in like a Hollywood movie visual, you know, way, it, 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 it really emphasizes how cartoonish your dialogue is like if you had a bit more stylized graphics it wouldn't seem so off but yeah, you know it, 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 there, there's a there's a double-sided a double-edged blade so to speak when you go to that realistic and also gets more expensive it you know it, it a, a lot a lot of things but i think i kind of get what you mean where you're and especially like the other point you brought up with the mortal combat is that a lot of stories are written uh backwards where it's like uh, um yeah we need these two things. We need this thing to happen. We need, you know, Batman and Superman to fight. Cool. How do we write backwards from that to make that happen rather than what would be a good story if these, yeah. if these two characters existed in the same universe, what would probably happen? You know, like they're, they're, they're like at the end goal of where, you know, you have all these Mortal Kombat characters from all these different dimensions and timelines fighting together and they're trying to just stitch together some some excuse for that to happen rather than what would be the logical conclusion for all of these characters or situations to be in the same universe. And we've seen some mm. really interesting uh, explorations of that. If you do it well, it's all about the execution. You can make anything, you can make anything work. Like uh, famously, uh, uh, Jim Butcher, who wrote, um, I don't know if you ever read the, I, my uh, fiance reads a lot of the Jim Butcher stuff, but uh, he wrote um, 
oh, I totally forgot uh, it. Uh, Dresden Files. I have to. Um, oh, okay. good, good series of books, but um, he famously uh, did a uh, a conference and asked um, people to give him two crazy ideas, uh, just at random, two crazy ideas, and he'll merge it together and make a, a legitimate, uh, taken seriously uh, uh, series out of it. And people gave him, the two ideas they gave him was uh, Pokemon and the Lost Roman Legion. Two things you'd like. Okay. How the hell will that work, right? He made a legitimate oh. source. Was the, uh, I, think I the, mean, Kingdom Hearts exists. Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> I, I, I hate, I hate that's, Kingdom that's Hearts a thing. for the passion, but that's just me. Wow. There wow. you go. I, I, that's a completely legitimate opinion. Um, I, I'm fine with it, but, but I don't blame you. Also, it, it, I, chat might be mad at you for saying anime writing is bad. No, I, I mean, it, it's, it, anime, anime fits within itself because it is cartoony. It is kind of heightened it is yeah. fantasy it is it is uh unrealistic but if you took akira is written like crap <laughs> uh akira is a, that movie not, not to get off a tangent but akira is a fantastic beautiful movie my god oh oh great. completely beautiful let yeah. me show you uh, okay <laughs> we, we lost it we lost completely the crew member beautiful I, I thought it was interpretive dance time but anyway <laughs> no the visual design the visual design is wow. beautiful yeah. it's the only good part <laughs> We've lost our Akira fan base. Oh no! <laughs> no, no, it is the the manga was apparently good. I don't know. I didn't read it, but the even the even the manga writer said that the movie is a mess because they try to condense so much into one movie that it is unintelligible. It skips such large parts of the plot. It can't make sense. It's just beautiful, and that's why people like it, and why I got this awesome jacket. But like, <laughs> it's terrible. So yeah, I back you up on anime writing. So yeah, but but like imagine if you took an anime Which... shot for shot, word for word, and and did it yeah. in like Hollywood, you know, with real actors, like it would seem real really actors. Out of place. <laughs> well, like uh, you know, like like live action. Okay, see, I thought you seem... meant like voice uh, anime voice actors aren't real actors. No, no, no. I I I, I actually respect voice actors more than I I, I respect. Um, in general respect uh, live action because you have to do so much more I, with just one i think one i game. agree actually but uh no, no also I, this it's, it's yeah. no sorry go ahead what oh no go ahead i, I was just gonna join with something but you were you were in the no in the i'm flow. just on a long tangent sorry uh yeah i just well, i remember <laughs> what my point was akira something bad you're bad yeah okay. um i did it i derailed said, it again <laughs> Like, I don't know, like, you take, a, you take a scene from World of Warcraft, it's got kind of uh, painterly, kind of stylized, somewhat cartoony video game graphics. It's fine. You put that into a really Beautiful. dark, you take that exact scene, took it into like a dark, gritty, uh, you know, live action, you know, photorealistic setting. You're like, hmm, there's something off here. It's like the t it totally just doesn't really fit. So, uh, yeah, photorealism has its good, especially if you're trying to tell a very realistic down to earth story, you know, photorealism yeah. can only help. But if you, if you are kind of heightened reality, if you aren't really just like grounded, I think that, uh, having more stylized graphics can actually be a bonus. Yeah. You have to make sure the form match matches the tone. Yeah. Um, cool. So hmm. <laughs> now that we're, now that we know that cure is bad and, uh, <laughs> that's all you need to know. 
other, <laughs> other topics here. Um, I should have put all the Mass Effect jacket when you said Mass Effect's ending was bad. <laughs> I actually have a Kira like uh, hoodie, I think, somewhere around here, but I'm not gonna pull it out. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I got so, the English patch on the back and everything. English. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna bring up something not controversial at all and talk about PC platform wars. Uh, okay. So Epic Games, <laughs> Ep, uh, Epic Games exclusivity. Um, uh, Origin is apparently st- teaming up with Steam again. They're like making those games kind of cross compatible somehow. Uh, cool. As the games have actually kind of, they went off and did their own thing for like a year, and now they're kind of like bringing their games back to Steam. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Uh, they realized it wasn't profitable because their platforms suck. I've had my Ubisoft <laughs> account hacked like twice by Russians who then g- unlocked a bunch of stuff in video games for me. Mm. And then I got my account back. They just like, and when I got my account back, they didn't ask me for any proof that I own the account. They just gave it to me, which tells you how bad the security oh, is on no. Ubisoft. All these other platforms are really horrifically bad. I have this really fun problem with uh, the Epic Game Store where randomly one out of, I'd say, three times that I close a game on Epic, the Epic Game Store then tries to open and it'll rapidly open and close and create a strobing effect until I go into my uh, until I go into my task manager and end the process for it. And it is blinding. It could probably kill an epileptic. So <laughs> that's that platform. That platform tries to kill you. Uh, Ubisoft gets hacked always. Um, I had so many viewers tell me that their Origin account has been hacked to the point that they can't even get it back anymore and the Origin support does not respond to them anymore. Including my best friend had that happen to him. Every one of these platforms are so bad except for steam and gog that of course they're coming back to steam they're not selling anything on their garbage platform what is rockstar doing selling their what was it red dead redemption 2 everybody wants it on pc yeah and then then they tried to sell it on rockstar no it's on steam already because no one bought it on rockstar God. Yeah, yeah, at least they had a they had like a month of exclusivity for RDO two, which I'm like, okay, kind of sucks, but at least they know that people are gonna some people are gonna buy immediately on their platform, and some people are gonna wait a month. I'm not so bummed about a month delay before it gets on Steam, but like a year delay. A year delay yeah, is a insane. bit much. Like we've been years. Yeah. Look at the chat. Has... Multiple people in the chat have had multiple different accounts hacked of the oh, platforms no. I just talked about. A, a chat of less than a hundred people, and people in here have had that problem. It's that common. Yeah. We have well. EA. Yeah, we have Origin in there. Multiple stories of Origin accounts getting hacked. It's unbelievable. It's all the time. Yeah, that's too bad. Because yeah. um, oh, sorry, you're gonna say something, Griffin? No, I was just gonna say like I don't, I don't use the like. That's probably because like the the scope of ha- the games that I play usually don't branch out to EA they, uh, often. Um, Ubisoft, I think I played Far Cry three on there for a f- few hours, but that was like the only time I used the Ubisoft one. Bethesda a few one, few hours like... was the right decision. <laughs> and then like with the um, what's it the um, Bethesda one, I went on there. I think it's also with a lot of these launches they try and like they can go oh look at these other products that we have see it's right here in this convenient corner for you to click on and it's like yeah i'm only here for this game that i bought on steam that makes me go to this launcher you know it's it's not a good sort of platform to be like sell more stuff how about trying different avenues of marketing yeah i mean we're kind of it's interesting how you see developing uh markets and developing technologies kind of make the same mistakes that that older uh markets and older um commercial avenues did like you know you saw 
it was it used to be that every store was its own little thing. You'd have a you'd have a belt buckle store. You'd have like a you'd have a, a, a horseshoe store. You'd have a this store and that. And then eventually people figured out like, how about we have a general store? How about we have a department store where we carry everything? Yep. You know, so you could you could hmm. get everything you need and pay once. You know, and it's really convenient. You just go to that store for everything you need. And that's why Walmart is, is took over the world. You know, because everybody likes having everything relatively decently priced they don't have to travel across town 50 times to get everything they need at a at a decent rate and availability but the problem uh then becomes like with esteem that was this kind of the one-stop shop for you know digital online goods it wasn't perfect at the beginning it took many years to get to be as good as what it is now but once people saw the money there they're like okay we're gonna pull our goods from Steam and make our own store. And then, you know, it happened with Uplay, it happened with Origin, with Bethesda and Epic Games. Uh, they didn't really have their games on Steam, so it wasn't as big of a deal. I mean, they had a couple of their, I don't know, tournament games and stuff like that, but they, their <clears> new <throat> games were kind of built onto Epics, and that's fine. You know, if you want to play Fortnite on Epic Games, I understand that. But then the kind of forced exclusivity, you know, agreements where... Yeah. You know, I can understand, you know, I 100% I'm working on a, on pitching a game right now. I can definitely understand how difficult it is to get initial funding. And I, 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 I see where they're coming from, but at the same time, it's like, you're, you're making your product literally less attractive and literally less uh, easy to get on a less attractive platform with, with less perks and reliability, you know, like a. There was that time where I think it wasn't it, that crazy Fortnite a live stream where Epic was just down for like an hour or a few hours or something like that. So you couldn't even play your games, you know, things like that. It really doesn't bring a lot of, uh, it doesn't give you a lot of uh, confidence in your, in your store, your platform or your, your business. So it, it, it definitely, it, we're seeing the same thing, not to get off on a tangent again, but and because we've been really on topic so far with this with this podcast, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the same we're seeing the same thing with a uh, with movie and and video streaming platforms. When Netflix oh, yeah, it was going, it yeah. was viable, now everybody's creating their own streaming platform. You've got Disney Plus, you've got HBO, you've got uh, like two or three different ones for Warner Brothers. You've got uh, mm-hmm. CBS uh, All Access. You've got Hulu, you've got a Starbucks has originals or whatever. Facebook has originals. Apple has originals. Wait, like, Starbucks? Uh, at least one, one? yeah. What? <laughs> what? Wow. It's wow. a coffee company. I know, right? But uh, it, it, it's gone crazy. Like, once you prove that it's it's viable, everybody goes crazy and creates their own thing. I think it was, like, one show. I don't know if it actually became a thing, but it was definitely... It was called a Starbucks original. But, um... Okay. Yeah, Facebook Watch is a thing now. So, yeah, it... it, it it, it, we've, we've gone back to full full circle where things are more inconvenient now than they were before. So I, I think it's yeah. anti-consumer. I like competition. And if, mm-hmm. if Steam definitely had its blind spots in terms of customer refunds and stuff like that, those have been mostly fixed, I think. But Mostly. But yeah, like I think that there's, if you're going to compete, compete on a fair ground. Like have yeah. four different platforms. And your your privacy policies, your refund policies, your pricing schemes, and your reliability will determine who who will get more business. I if, agree exactly. completely. If everyone gets the same yeah. games, you know. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Someone pointed out in the comments how people also use launches so they can collect the uh, collect data relevant yeah, to the game. Yeah. And stuff I was just like reading that. that. 
Yeah. I'm not sure how to pronounce that username because I think it might be a German channel and I do not speak the language. But uh, <laughs> congratulations on them on getting getting verified. Good on you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. They they're uh gave me a mat. Yeah, uh they're a German channel. They uh watch a lot of the okay. live streams and things like that. They're pretty cool guys. Um mm. Oh Indigo, you almost meet the requirements for verification. When you hit a hundred thousand, let me know and I'll I'll link you the page. Cool, yeah, yeah. I mean hopefully by the end <laughs> yeah, of the not, year. Yeah, we'll not not everybody knows about it. It's weird, but you actually need to go ask. Yeah, you need to ask. Um yeah, mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. hopefully by the end of the year if if I'm currently coasting on my last video, if I can Maybe pass 100 by the end of the year. We'll see. Yeah, you'll get there soon. Uh, I'm sure that one will carry you past because that video, that video is awesome. Yeah, thank you. Even if it doesn't, you're welcome. The Kira. <laughs> yeah, what what the hell is that all about? <laughs> Jesus, get, get this filth off of me, Jesus! Just, I'm sorry for derailing us again. This horribly written, beautiful filth off of me. Um, <laughs> cool. Let's see. Uh, all right, uh, Griff. Should we do metagaming or multifaceted diplomacy? Um, multifaceted is rather quick, but okay. some others may have some things. But pretty much the approach is that in RPGs, you don't have persuasion or diplomacy to be the one thing that determines if you can unlock options in dialogue. It's the idea that you can, like we were talking about before, intelligent. If you're intelligent, it opens new dialogue avenues for to solve problems in, in dialogue. Or, for example, like in Pillars, which is where I kind of started thinking about this a bit more is you could do stuff like oh if you're if you have a high history skill you can have oh yeah i know this problem because in history this was done before and the person's like oh that makes sense and you oh, resolve cool. that issue you resolve that issue from like not just strict diplomatic skills uh there's stuff like there's um very other fringe ones like streetwise for example like i remember early in pillars 2 there's a situation where you can get into this gang fight but if you have high streetwise, which is also used for like finding objects and stuff like that, you can go, oh, we should probably break up this fight now because the guards are coming. It's kind of like a lie, but it's also just, you know, this, the city. So you can go, no, no, we can't hang around in a group for too long. Otherwise, people will suspect things. It's that sort of stuff that should be incorporated into more RPGs because sometimes the persuasion diplom diplomacy skill in RPGs can kind of just be, oh, I'll just become a, a diplomancer and just completely own the entire game you know like diplomancer like yeah, yeah. <laughs> i like that term yeah yeah, it, yeah. i like i love games with multiple like you said multiple uh different ways of convincing like uh one example that i always go to is a uh, vampire the masquerade bloodlines that had mm. like seduction persuasion and intimidation so it had three different mm. avenues for you to take so you know you know like being able to you know get at somebody's neck to drain their blood during in a in a you know dance club for example that'd be a seduction thing uh you know getting a guard to back down and let you in that be might be an intimidation or whatever bribing mm. somebody might be a persuasion so there's like different avenues and how you built your character would 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 affect that greatly if you're very beautiful if you're very attractive you could be more seductive but if you're very strong and kind of brutish you'd be more intimidating and things like that yeah but there you can go so many different ways like i even uh, started tinkering with a a, a stat system that which every Every one of like seven or eight stats would have some sort of dialogue uh, option unlock. Like if you were more uh, dexterous or stealthy, you'd be able to lie better. You know, if you were more uh, uh, had more wisdom or or intelligence, you'd have more history and knowledge and lore to be able to explain or you know interpret things better that way. If you were more you know uh, 
let's say strong you'd be more intimidating so like it's like almost every single stat could actually be a sort of uh influential to dialogue you know not not every single dialogue option but you'd have more dialogue options pop up depending on how you build your character i think that i think that kind of makes it more interesting because yeah it otherwise it's just like you know one option for any situation it's not necessarily true because some people are very are very convincing liars some people are extremely good at selling some people are extremely good at avoiding you know or 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 using tact to avoid people's nerves things like that you know exactly and also for stuff like you know well i I like how you point out the seduction thing because that's so uh, a vampire masquerade bloodlines is such a big thing for that because if you play the game as a female or a male, you get really different sort of like character journeys, you know, like I remember uh, I've, you know, played the game a bunch of times, but like you're always in a male Toreador and you have issues around that. But if you walk in as a female, like anything and you walk up to the bartender, you're like, Oh, Hey, I want to go see somebody like, yeah, yeah, go on up. Yeah. <laughs> it like completely changes the gameplay because of that. And it, it, it also says a lot about the world as a result. So it's, perfect <laughs> it's almost like you're playing a role and and your role determines how how the world responds to you or something like that like in in a club that it, there's it's no secret but it clubs quite often let you know attractive women in for free because it attracts more men uh you know guys who pay for money they pay for uh drinks and things like that so it's, it's pay it's for a, money pay for money yeah, exactly <laughs> uh but yeah the it is interesting again that kind of goes back to one of our previous points just the world responding to you in different ways based on your character that yeah is, exactly we're seeing more of that we're seeing kind of resurgence of that kind of they used to be kind of reserved for older old school games whereas more more so than not newer rpgs kind of make you play a, a sp- predefined character more so like you play the mm. dragonborn or you play you know commander shepherd who's got his whole backstory and everything you may have a variation of that character, but it's basically the same character for everybody. Um, it's easier to write around a predefined character that almost every player plays rather than you having a potentially very, very different character from what they expect you to. So it, it's a, it's a, it's a writing hit, uh, you know, crutch and it lets, uh, especially for dialogue, it lets you get off a lot easier because you're able to write, you know, a quarter of the dialogue and especially voice a quarter of the dialogue rather than having to write all these different, you know, ancillary answers, but yeah. And I think also speaking of multifaceted diplomacy, I think one thing that needs to come across is that is you need required skill levels. It can't be percentages. You need an absolute skill level because I don't know if for you, but when I played fallout three and I had dialogue, like speech thing, I just like, before I entered the dialogue, quick save and just do it over and over and over and over until I got the chance. But with a defined skill level, like you're like, Oh, I don't have this thing. And you kind of, prompted to go how do i increase that or how do i find an item that could boost it for this particular dialogue instance and stuff like that yeah it's always a tricky thing uh, avoiding save saves coming is always tricky like either do just the guaranteed win or lose or you can have it roll a chance every time but that just like there was one time where i had a five percent chance i just saved it and and re-rolled it until i got the five percent chance took me 20 30 times but it eventually worked but, Welcome uh, to Pokemon challenges. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I didn't think of that. There's a five percent. There's a five percent chance that I can win this encounter. Well, it's better than grinding for two days, and I have a soft time limit. So I guess this is my next 100 attempts. You know, I just beat the Elite Four earlier today using only the move Metronome, the move that picks random moves. 
from the whole move pool of the game. She could get. I won. Really get splash. But, you know. <laughs> I've been doing it for two days, two straight days of the Elite Four, okay. and I did it earlier today. You've got a lot of patience. <laughs> I am the most patient man in the world. <laughs> but it's funny as well how like that should be coming up more often. This multifaceted diplomacy thing, because in Greedfall, it steps back and it does the whole percentage thing again and again. I just found myself stopping it, reloading, stopping it, reloading. And it's funny because Greedfall came out 2019, and it's but a lot of games are still kind of coming up to that point of oh yeah, defined skill levels Greedfall. and stuff. Hmm. Yeah, it's a what is uh, this game? It's a spiders game. They they've made they've made a lot of RPGs. Not all of them great, but they they try to uh, they they really really uncharitably you can call them a poor man's Bioware, but they recently be kind of okay. surpassing Bioware in some ways. So Greedfall was in uh, some ways, received yeah. by some the, by a lot of people as being pretty good. So this one was reminds to, me of oh. that game Vampire, where I heard it existed. <laughs> And then people stopped talking about it three days later. Yeah, it, it kind of had one of those like hyped releases, and then like just yeah. silence after. Was was Vampire good? I played like an hour. I bought it. I don't know personally. I bought it. I need to play it. I've heard it has some cool ideas. Um, you can kind of like ruin some people's lives, and they'll stay okay. ruined and stuff like that. In that, it's got like a small ecosystem. Uh, in a small town, basically, some kind of cool ideas like that, but. Okay. I, I need to play. I, I can definitively tell you that the cool ideas are not within the first hour. <laughs> um, cool. Do you have any uh, any thoughts on that, uh, Soul Porpoise? Um, <clears throat> yeah, not not really. I I uh, I do think that if you do um, take advantage, like in in defense of having a uh, a random outcome to like a conversation, uh. I do think if you do like uh, keep on reloading the save until you get what you what you want to get, I think there's a certain amount of like uh, you reap what you sow in that. <laughs> like to not role play to actively try to scam the game out of what like it's intending to do. Um, it depends on what's the result. What's like if it's like that's exactly the it. one like, thing the before you have a fight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you're not going to obviously. Um, not want to do it be tempted yeah. to do it I've, i'm guilty myself but i do think like uh there is some like element of that just letting the game do what it wants to do and kind of i like did that in pillars like there were some things that are unavailable to me because like i i was in that relevant skill but i was like two notches off i'm like uh -huh. oh damn you know but i wouldn't like leave and then try and do it again i'm like well i'm in this situation let's just try and find another way around it and the the quest wouldn't turn out the way i want it to but it would be this kind of journey of like okay I'm, that means next level i need to put some more points in that just in case i get something like that again and that's the attitude you can have to a set skill level and when i say the speech level thing like percentages i always think about fallout 3 because i remember like there'd be times when like a bandit will stop you be like hand over your money and i'm like speech 67 percent and i'm yeah. like well gonna have <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, a quick addendum to what I said before, because I worded something poorly. Uh, when I when I was asking if Vampire was any good and said I only played the first hour, I was talking about the new game called Vampire, like V-A-M-P-Y-R. Some people thought that I was talking mm. about Vampire the Masquerade, which I have played a few hours of in high school, and then I got scared by a haunted house and bitched out. I do need to play it again. Yeah. I'm better about horror games now. I can. I probably have a lot of fun with it nowadays. Yeah. Uh, something I was going to say about all that, and I totally got 
my mental derailed by vampires, but it's, 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 all, it's all good. Vampires usually derail things. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what we're talking about? I, uh, oh yeah. Uh, there's actually one way. It's not really been done very often, but you know how you have like a random roll whenever you do one of those skill check options with some games like Fallout Three versus Fallout New Vegas, which has more of a static um, mm-hmm. requirement. There is a way to do it. It's a little bit complicated, but instead of rolling as you click the option, you essentially have a random seed generated at the beginning of the game that does essentially all of your rolls predeterminedly. Hmm. So you do have that chance that you might be able to uh, do a, a dialogue option that might be a little bit above your grade. But if you fail, it's always going to be the failure based on your current stat. So you can't okay. save scum. You have that bit, that, that, that level That's of interesting. Like randomity. So you never quite know if you're good enough. But if you fail, you know that okay. Well, I can't save scum it because my that's that's based that's basically my destiny. Like at, at my current skill level, I cannot I cannot exceed that role that's already been done. Basically, it's it's a bit complicated, but a programmer explained it to me, and it is possible. So I'm, yeah. I'm actually exploring. This in fact, yeah. Um, yeah. the DS Pokemon games of all things have a system like that okay. where they they understood that emulation was very popular by then and so i i don't know why they would do this because it, it literally only affects emulators and it doesn't stop piracy in literally any way but in the in all of the pokemon games leading up until the fourth generation when it went to uh ds if you hypothetically use an emulator to save during a battle and let's say your attack has 75 accuracy and you missed you could load and do it over and over until you hit, or do it over and over until you critically hit, which is a 1 in 24 chance. In the DS games, however, if you were to save during a battle and you pick tackle, your outcome on that turn for every one of your four moves and whatever they're about to do to you is hard set into the game. It already knows whether that move would miss or not, whether it would crit or not. Wow. And so it literally all it does is keep you from save scumming specifically only an emulator because on console or on DS in that case, you wouldn't be able to save during a battle to attempt a save scum. Right. Um it literally only affects emulator uh, it's the only way where it, it could possibly affect it, because if you were to, like, reload to your last in-game save to before the battle, obviously everything is re-randomized, because that's how Pokemon works. And so, it has a system like that, and it actually works very well, it's just so strange that that is literally only implemented for emulators. Yeah, I almost, almost think that may have been an accidental effect, unless they really planned yeah. that uh, yeah. loading and saving states would necessarily break the game, but... Yeah, if you took a system like that and made it so that there is that possible, there's that unknown factor. Because I like the idea that I don't have a good chance of doing this, but maybe I'll pull something out of my hat and and pull off mm-hmm. a great a great speech and convince the guy, even though I'm not good at that. It's not because like that's me. a decision you make on yeah. that taking that risk. That's that's a risk. Um, there's a word that I'm forgetting. Mis- risk management, mm-hmm. which is a big part of you know um, XCOM and stuff. Right. Is you're trying to play the odds as a gambling thing. Someone yeah. mentioned it, XCOM in the in the chat as well, talking mm, about how yeah, they do yeah. something very similar to what um, Indigo has been talking about. So yeah, mm. it's pretty interesting. It's XCOM's been one of those games I've been meaning meaning to check out, but it, time. So yeah, <laughs> I, I do recommend it for whatever that's worth. Uh, XCOM Two is fantastic. XCOM One is great in its own way, but XCOM Two is very very good. Yeah, yeah another way you could do it, and I, I've actually <clears throat> discussed this with a game designer as well, or the idea of uh, actually 
slightly penalizing save scummers every time you load your save game something is lost that would be kind of interesting yeah. like there would actually be a counter attached to your save game every time you loaded it there'd be something well bad. you know undertale would... <laughs> yeah it's true yeah, undertale uh, yeah. did something like that yeah it's it's a it, it it it's interesting like i actually would almost like to have an rpg where you can't renege on your you know uh on your decisions like once you've done them you've done them yeah but, That's why I like Iron Man saves. Yeah, but that that also has its. Sometimes you just kind of get screwed. Like I heard that somebody, uh, yeah, a uh, 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 let's player actually was uh, Iron Manning. I think Witcher, or Witcher Two, or whatever, and something mm-hmm. glitched, and they died during a cutscene. Oh no! Yeah, you know yeah, stuff like that happens. happens. I mean, so. I I play. Uh, I have a save file of Crusader Kings Two that's been going for just like a a couple weeks over a year on an Iron Man save. We've had multiple. Uh, glitches that were quite bad and i managed to pull through on almost all of them but uh sometimes you can just get fucked and if you didn't have saves if this were not an iron man save you would have been able to go back and that's a legitimate reason to go back because the game something bugged out i think that's the most legitimate reason i can think of to save scum um yeah, definitely. And, and that's that's a shame because you know XCOM has iron man saves for instance as an optional thing you can do right. but there's always that little worry of yeah it's a whole lot of fun but there's that little worry of what if something glitches out what do i do like that's a lot of time you just wasted sure yeah i think this discussion's going somewhere interesting because it's talking about now like difficulty and stuff like that you know like like uh there's iron man challenges in stellaris and i actually just started my mm. first one a couple of days ago oh, it's and fun it- isn't it yeah, and one thing it does is says, "Oh, you can now do achievements." And I'm like, "Oh, yes. you can do achievement with Iron Man mode." Like that feels mm-hmm. like really rewarding to do. And um, mm-hmm. cause, partly because like I log into the Steam thing, and my mate who also plays it, he's got like 16 achievements. I'm like, "Well then." <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge, right? Like that's what that's what I do in Paradox games as well. Is I tried, I want to be the guy in my friends list with the most achievements. I have like 700 friends because I let my fans uh, add me. But like, mm. I want to. It's just, it's a fun thing for me. Of I'm not a big achievement hunter, but if it's a game I'm really passionate about, I want to try and get all of them. So, like, Hearts of Iron 4, I've got almost all of them. Stellaris, I'm working on it. There's a lot. <laughs> uh, Europe Universalis 4, that shit's not happening. Just like a billion. Yeah. yeah. That actually uh, dovetails another thing, but I was going to ask real quick. Uh, Soul Purpose, how is your time? Are you, you have a hard... Yeah. I was going to... Yeah. soon, right? Um... Uh, yeah, I can go like another 15 minutes, but yeah, I'm, okay. I'm clear enough at the end. Cool. All right, let's go on for a little, little bit while longer, then we'll figure out if you guys are still up, we could probably continue with just three, but it may de- destroy the template. We'll have to, I'll have to figure that, cross that bridge when we get to it. I can mm-hmm. talk forever. <laughs> Got the day uh, off, I'm good. Cool. Oh, right. <laughs> what were we just talking about? We're talking about something that's similar to one of the points I had. Uh, Who knows? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, we were talking about achievements. Um, it's one kind of thing. It's not necessarily new. It kind of came, I'd say it probably got into popularity around the time the Xbox 360 launched. Um, yeah. Uh, collectibles, just like a ridiculous amount of collectibles and like achievement culture where it's like, I'm going to platinum this game. You know, like I, I've talked to several people in, in real life that have actually platinumed uh Spider-Man game for PS4. I guess that one's fairly easy to platinum because I've never gotten even close to platinuming a game myself. Um, how do you think? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Like, I, I I'm kind of mixed on it. Like, I, I think it's cool that they have a meta game inside of a game, where just doing every all the major actions you can do in a game, collecting all the things in the game. But at the same time, I can kind of see 
how a lot of time is being spent on games to design them to just have a lot of just random activities to do to appease that kind of demographic? Do you think it's hurting design or do you think it's harmless? It can. Look at Ubisoft games. I think they're they're particularly bad about um things for the sake of having more things there. Um I actually quite yeah. like collect like old school collectathons. Banjo uh Kazooie is one of my favorite games. Uh I actually really liked DK sixty four, even though I'm the only one. Um <laughs> either than the scare brace, I think unanimously as a race we can all agree that the scare brace was a mistake. But um the uh I actually quite like those games, and yet I, when I play like Assassin's Creed and stuff like that, I, it really does feel like a lot of these things are put in just for the sake of having more things. Whereas um, when there's an incentive to do really wacky things and collect a lot of things or do things you wouldn't normally do in a fun way, uh, I think that actually adds to the experience quite a bit. A great example of that is Hearts of Iron 4's achievements are often very creative and get you to play different countries you wouldn't normally play in ways that you wouldn't normally play them, and you get such vastly different experiences out of that that I feel like it really adds something. There, there's an example of they put in a tons of th- a, a ton a ton of stuff that isn't necessarily new things core to the game that really add a lot of value to a lot of players. And then there's Assassin's Creed. Yeah. And it's also <laughs> how the collectibles or whatever are implemented in a certain way. I like it when collectibles are added and they actually have a bit of a story element. Like off the bat, I can say the Batman Arkham games, the Riddler trophies, because they unlock like an- another bit of story for you to do. Some people find it a bit annoying, but personally that that was the drive to find these collectibles was like, oh, I'm going to interact with the Riddler. You know, that, that was the drive. Mm. But definitely in Ubisoft games, there's like collect feathers because he once had a bird and there's feathers everywhere like what (laughs) maybe you'll get a costume or you'll get a weapon that you already beat the game by this point but here's a weapon yeah i remember in number two it's like if you collect all the feathers you get like a a fancy shoulder cape i'm pretty sure yeah and i'm like good i guess are you telling me that you don't want the bragging rights of having the most ubi points on ubisoft on your on your play account (laughs) you know (laughs) you know for years back in the days when people use skype for years my uh my description like the the mood description thing on skype was no one uses uplay willingly Yeah. And also with like the achievement stuff, some people have brought up stuff like with the 360 achievements, there was a gamer score. So that was a bit of a thing because you were yeah. literally ranked between people. And also um, someone's pointed out how achievements should be about challenges. Like um, someone mentioned Dishonored. I haven't played Dishonored, but um, I'm going to imagine there's like kill a, per- a kill a person a certain way, stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Which I mean, would be uh, good incentives for achievements. Yeah. And, and, and it, as far as I know, achievements, uh, they've kind of been ported to almost everything now. I think uh, Ubisoft probably has them. Steam definitely has, like, a player level and stuff like that. Um, but the the achievements themselves, they're given a number of points, I think. Um, but it's up to the developer to design them. And some, some uh, developers were notoriously lazy about designing their achievements. So mm. there were literally games that got, un- like, ironic... Uh, popularity due to how easy it was to to 100% them. Like, yep, they were know. cheap and it was easy to 100%. It's it's similar to the market on Steam of people who put out really 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 bad 
um, dirt cheap Unity asset flips, but the achievements, the pictures for the achievements are popular. For instance, yeah. one you'll you'll often see is like there'll be a game for like 99 cents American and you'll buy it and like there's something super easy you can do right at the start like look at the credits and it'll give you every letter of the alphabet as achievements and then what you do is you go in your showcase mode on your scene profile and you can like spell your name or something that's so and they, that's their that's their business uh model and is the most do you even call that meta game because steam it's as a really platform critical, isn't yeah. a game it's the most meta <laughs> it's the most meta steam business model i've ever heard of it's yeah. it's kind of beautiful in its own way well, but it's completely stupid yeah corrupted city in, uh, in chat brought up a game that i was actually thinking about which was this one last airbender game that nobody remembers for the xbox 360 where you basically the game is really short and if you just complete the game you get you get 100 you can't you can't not get 100 because they just broke up the achievements are literally just chapters chapter one chapter two mm -hmm. chapter three chapter four etc and if you complete all the chapters you get all the achievements so it was a mm -hmm. a, a insanely quick way to get a, a thousand gamer score within like a couple hours <laughs> so. i've heard about these sort of ones yeah the, yeah. There's another Xbox game that did that. And uh, I remember online, it's like, oh, if you want Bumpy, just go play this game and stuff. I'm like, but it's so strange. <laughs> it's like, but... it's the, it's like not at all what video games are about. And yet that's no. a thing people are into. Like, I, it's so strange to me, but it, it's absolutely fascinating that there's people who will spend money on games and the entertainment that they're looking for is the bragging rights of having a higher score than their friends regardless of the video game itself it's like there's this own game on the side of having the best score that is fascinating it'd be like going out and buying exotic sodas and tossing the bottle and keeping the cap or something like that it'd be like okay yeah i guess that's something but i think i cut you off soul are you gonna say something uh i don't remember it now i'm sorry been no, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. I probably derailed it. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it, it's it's not a, the biggest problem. I just noticed that more and more, and and less and less am I interested. Like you know, even the first couple of Assassin's Creed games, I'm like, I'm gonna complete every single side mission, or whatever. Never care about the flags and stuff. It's like flags, whatever. But uh, mm -hmm. as the time goes on, I'm noticing there's just tons and tons of filler content. And I can really, really think that it's there for the, the achievement hunters, you know, the kind of the, the platinum, the platinum gamers where they just want to get 100% on everything. And, and there's definitely an, uh, an audience for that, just like there's an audience for, you know, um, what do you, uh, I forgot the word is for playing a game fast, whatever it is. Speed, Speed running. running. Speed running. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you can, you can implement those in your game, but it, like, at what point does it actually, did, you know, perhaps more interesting content rather than just filler content that you can use to pad out 100%, you know? Maybe that's a... I mean, it's up to the designers and the players to work that out, I guess, but I've noticed that as a more and more of a thing where people want to, uh, you know, get a specific arbitrary goal of completing X number of content rather than actually enjoying the game. When it comes to the oddity of speedrunning getting popular and how, you know, should a game cater to that? Um, how can a game cater to that? You know, stuff like that. Generally, all, generally all speedrunners want is a really robust in-game timer because most games, their in-game timer is so far off that no one uses it and people use real-life time, which is a pain in the ass. Yeah. Like, I speedrun Silent Hill 2 on PC, which is a beautiful game because I believe... 
from what we know from the development of it, the PC port was developed in two weeks, so they had no QI time. And so every glitch that I do to skip something in the game is based around a PC exclusive mechanic because every single one has a major bug uh, related to it. And for whatever reason, Silent Hill games have immaculate in-game timers. They do not count cutscenes. They do not count menus, either than like one menu. Um, they're just immaculate. Like, so we use in-game time. You can hook up a program to detect the in-game time so you can have a timer that's accurate. That's like all speedrunners ask for when it comes to that stuff, because anything beyond that, you're probably going to mess something up for the casual player, which is like the 99% of your, your player base. Yeah, speedrunning mm. is a complete fluke. I, I've heard uh, Yeah, some people It's argue. beautiful, but it's, it's so niche. It's so fucking niche. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I actually heard somebody argue about how a game in the 90s was designed a certain way for speedrunners, and I'm like, you, were you alive in the 90s? Do you remember what <laughs> it, game in the 90s was it's not, <laughs> it's not completely impossible. The word speedrunning wouldn't really be a thing, but there were people who competed over time-based scores since the Atari days, since the arcade days. You just wouldn't sure. call that speedrunning. It's an evolution of competing for score in arcade games. That's what speedrunning mostly comes from. But, you know, like, if you look especially at the history of 007 Goldeneye on the N64, yeah. people were posting their scores online of their times and trying to post proof and making moderation of that literally the month the game came out. And wow. there were you can watch videos of it to this day. Like, Goldeneye is, a, is kind of a special case of they got on the speedrunning thing incredibly early and started showing video of it and everything. There's, there's actually like a channel where you can go back and watch the history of it, including like the old black and white, like recorded it in PAL on an NTSC <laughs> console, glitched out footage, and you're like, and you watch a run and you're like, wow, I can't tell, I can't even read the end score. And they're like, and we accepted that back then. Wow. But there's actually a speedrunning community for it. Yeah. So it's older than people think, but it's also been dodgy as hell for a long time. But yes, some developers actually intended things. <clears throat> to be speed runnable. They just wouldn't call that. They would have thought of it as we want people to be able to compete over how fast they beat each level. Like Doom. That's why Doom had the replay system that was way ahead of its time. Doom 1 had a system where you can save a replay of any given level where it's actually saving all of your buttons that you input really? in like a two kilobyte file that you can then send to anyone and they can play the replay and all it's doing is clicking all the same huh. buttons they clicked. Huh. And that way you could send essentially flawless video to people through Doom 1 uh, online through message boards back in the day to compare files and they were really hard to doctor to the point that to this day Doom 1 uses the same system. You don't use video, you use the in-game replay which is just buttons. Wow. And you can actually read the button inputs so you can read if, uh, if they used a bot to hack it because you can see inhuman inputs. Yeah, It's beautiful. Human would, That's crazy. Human would be a bit more like wouldn't be exactly like on the on yeah. millisecond or whatever. It would be more. Yeah, you would, you would catch things where um, uh, because you'd be able to go back into the file and then continue from there to try and perfect sequences or yeah. input things there. You would notice weird little oddities like they'd be moving this way and then for literally one millisecond, they release or doing a different thing and then go back to it. That your your hands cannot move that fast and you could yeah. catch someone writing a script to do it through that. So even back in the days of Doom 1, they had the idea of let's make it easy to share what your time is legitimately so that players will come back to the game to compete and who can get the best time. So speedrunning has always been around. It's just, it's called speedrunning now. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can see that. I don't think it was really necessarily. I think this is about an RPG, so I, I doubt they were designing the RPG run speedrunning, but you know, maybe rarely, but perfectly <laughs> rarely, but there are cases. Yeah, sure. All right. Um, let's see. Do we have a couple a couple more minutes, or do you have to go, uh, Sol? Yeah, I should head out. Uh, but thanks for having me on. Yeah, uh, thanks, chat. Right. Thanks, guys. Have nice fun. Good to have you on, Sol. Yeah, great. you too. All right, I'll see you. Thanks for coming on, man. I'll see you later. All right, uh, this is my my beautiful my beautiful thing is broken. Okay, so let's. Oh, I gotta see now. this. We gotta we can repair this. Hang on one second. I don't believe right. you. Uh, all right. So, you can repair this. Do you remember how long the beginning of the stream took? <laughs> oh no. Oh, I'm yeah. in between two things. I'm part Griffin, part Madrybred, and oh no. Yep. All right. Let's uh, see if we can do this. Oh no. Meanwhile, it's uh, I'll just have a look at the um chat and see if we have oh, anything. Someone in the chat like an hour ago was bringing up Temple of Elemental Evil, and I immediately went and redownloaded the game on GOG because I haven't played that in forever, and that game is sweet. Oh man, it is. It's really good. I, I think yeah. it was even Indigo that. Did a video on it, and he discussed how. Uh, did like, he? I gotta watch yeah, it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I did, did you? A video on there way back in the day. Yeah. Uh, oh, like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go watch it. Like not right like, now, it was but like, like the last. It was the last game Troika did, if I remember. Or was it the second last one they did Indigo? I um, thought it was, it was the last, it was but their I'm second dumb. of three games. Yeah. Second of three. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Temple <laughs> right. of Elemental uh, Evil. Two years Harden, ago. I'm watching Harden, it. Harden our dust. I just need to uh, crop some stuff here. No worries. Yeah. I can't see it because um because of my Australian internet, um, it's still like ten minutes behind on the stream. So I'm just I've just paused it and I'm just looking in the chat. So Yeah, this was not intended, but we started late and uh our friends uh had to leave early, so let's just see what we can do here. Far mm -hmm. earlier in the stream, you brought up that you moved out of Perth, and I started laughing, and I don't think you ever got context for that. I have a running joke, because I know a lot about Australia, because Australia and Canada are sister countries, and we mirror each other both in our strengths and weaknesses in, like, a billion ways. It's astonishing know, how similar it's a little the countries bit, are. It's a little bit ironic. Yeah, go ahead. It's eerie, yeah. Um, but I have a running joke that Perth does not exist. People who say they're from Perth are lying. They sent the Australian <laughs> government made up another city name to make it to act like they have more cities. Not unlike the way that you've heard of Winnipeg, but you don't. You've heard of Winnipeg and you might have heard someone say that they're from Winnipeg, but you don't actually have any proof that Winnipeg exists is because Winnipeg <laughs> is actually like, you know how on the North Korean South Korean border, they have mm -hmm. a, a North Korean city that looks like it's this bustling, beautiful city, but if you actually look with binoculars, it's a fake city made to try and get people to defect from South Korea to North Korea, and it just doesn't work. Um, that's Winnipeg. We're trying to act like we have more cities. We're trying to act like Manitoba has humans, uh, but, but Manitoba doesn't have humans. But we do have Winnipeg along the border to try and get Americans to move to uh, Manitoba so that we have a population in Manitoba, but it doesn't work. So that's why you've heard of Winnipeg, but it doesn't actually exist. And anything you say on see on Google is government propaganda. <laughs> the like only Perth. thing I could say, the only thing I could say about Perth, it is it is the largest country town in Australia. Like everything, about, like it doesn't really seem like a like it's just all like you 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 just bump into like people like oh I didn't know I bump into you here. It's also it's also you know people like by a rule of three, and yeah, it, it's also mm -hmm. just um. 
I've always talked about it here in Mel- like people with here in Melbourne. They're like, they always talk about like, oh, driving for 20 minutes, that's too far away. And I'm like, mm. 20 minutes is like really short here in Perth. What are you talking about? Yeah. Like, well, that's the thing. It's, my- it's Perth. It doesn't exist. <laughs> to drive my friend's place, I have to drive 30 minutes from my house to another. I mean- yeah. Like, welcome to Canada. Um, Australia and Canada are the two most sparsely populated first world countries in the world. So we feel the pain of we we both have like four or five cities that matter in any way. And then everything else, it's like there are part there are large, large, large parts of the country where if you live there, you're probably a crazy person in a shack somewhere because it's like (laughs) no one like what are you talking about? Like you live from you live in northern Ontario. You mean like if I drive two hours north? I'm literally running into native people. <laughs> we still have, we have tribes here, just like oh, Australia. Okay. Like you, and like they know English now and you can like trade cigarettes and crap with them. Uh, but like some of the tribesmen will live in the cities and then some like you just go out in the middle of nowhere and it's like, no, you are legitimately in a forest right now and you better know the, the, the rules with bears. Like I fell, a tr- <laughs> I have fell a tree before. I only had to go like an hour north and I'm already in the middle of absolutely nowhere where you need to know the bear rules of, you know, uh, if it, if it's, uh, what was it? If it's black fight back, if it's brown lie down, if it's white, good night. <laughs> Because you need, to, you need to know the bear rules. Welcome to Canada. Is a, we, we are still colonial in so many ways. Like, you know the government will pay you to go to unsettled land and start a hamlet. It's still it colonial beautiful. America. And the majority, <laughs> the majority of Canada is colonial America, where it's unsettled land of just wildlife and lush forests in hills and no one lives there and it's very very cold and it sucks and you can see god for games in the chat it's my friend brandon he said that's where i am (laughs) yeah don't go to northern ontario it's like northern quebec like all of 35 percent of canada's population lives in that little u-shaped dip in the east side of the country where it goes down into the great lakes near america that's 35 percent of our population because it's so cold and uninhabited like, mm. it's unbelievable. Yeah. I think well, for something. Australia, it's just, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, I think I heard something like 80% of the population is within 100 miles of the border in Canada. Or something yes, like yes, that. that that yeah. is also true. Is Everyone lives within about an hour of the border. Um, I, I live in an area. I did the math like a few years ago, so I'm probably, mis- I'm probably forgetting the map a, math a little, and I'm sure it's changed a little bit because population has gone up even more. We get a lot of immigration in Canada. But uh, where I live in the GTA, the greater Toronto area, which is Toronto and the cities within driving distance to Toronto, it's like because our economy is very Toronto based. You, you drive into Toronto to, to work, you know, for like an hour and a half drive to get there, and then you work in Toronto. Um, the, the GTA is uh i believe it was 12 percent of our entire country's population living on 0.04 percent of our land that is our population density thing we're the second least we're the second most sparsely populated country in the first world and yet we have that wicked of population density based around toronto (laughs) that's why if i want to buy a house here if i want to buy a house here where i don't even live in toronto i live like a a few cities over i'm like an hour drive away if i want to buy a house here starting price for kind of a crap house but it's like a two-story house um two like two thousand square foot house a little rundown is over a million dollars if i want to live in north carolina that then a 2000 square foot house that's nicer in North Carolina in Charlotte which is the same population as Toronto 
Charlotte, North Carolina, um, $215,000. Do you wonder why I'm immigrating right now? <laughs> and the tax is lower, and the price of goods is lower. This is Canada. It's very strange. It's, it's bizarro world. It's so you either, get paid, you either get paid to live somewhere, or you have to pay out the roof to live near yeah. Toronto, and there's bears. So, so let me tell you about Ontario a little bit. Ontario's nickname is Unterrible because we have Niagara Falls. Now, you'd think we have a hydroelectric dam on Niagara Falls. We must have the cheapest electricity in the world because that is one of the biggest waterfalls in the world. We have the most expensive electricity in Canada because we sell all of our hydroelectric electricity to the, to the states and buy back the surplus. Our money is worth 35% less than yours. Why are we doing that? <laughs> Yeah, Canada. Yeah. See, I'm the only Canadian who's willing to complain about the things in Canada because we have this weird reputation as a utopia and we're not a utopia. So I'm like the people who's like, no, if you're moving somewhere, don't move to Canada. You have better choices, please. <laughs> Live somewhere where it's nice and, and fun and you have money to like raise a family and you don't get taxed to hell and like the weather won't kill you. I mean, the weather will kill you in America too. There's like hurricanes and stuff, but it'll kill you less. Well, you know, like hurricanes, like there's like a one percent chance you get hit by a hurricane. Over here, there's a one hundred percent chance you're gonna get hit by winter. <laughs> so, you know, I'll take I'll take my chances in North Carolina with the hurricanes, because the hurricanes, you know, one percent chance you get hit. Winter's happening right now. That happens every year. That's a one hundred percent chance I get hit by winter. Mm. I hear you. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of uh, high prices and expensive housing. Let's talk about eternal grinding in games. So, <laughs> so the, the stream's all good to go thing. like this. Uh, if you want, if you want to, yeah. If you're available, I mean, you, you took the day off, right? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good to go. It's just uh, for the um, layout that you had. It was all good, yeah. Yeah, it took me a couple minutes to figure that out. I had to split up the stuff, but it should be all good now. So, hmm. grinding. Where can we start? Jesus. Um, are we I talking like lot. MMO? Are we talking about? Single player, like oh, it's it's abundant in games now. Yes, yeah, dude, grinding is my grinding is like forty hours of every week for me because of Pokemon. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I yeah. forget about that. Yeah, a lot of random random chance stuff in Pokemon, like you know, zero point zero one chance to get a shiny Mew or whatever. It's like, oh, I don't do shinies. I don't get shiny hunting. I don't get the appeal. I mean, I grind in Pokemon challenges because I do one every single week. So I'll literally be grinding in a Pokemon game while editing another Pokemon run. Sometimes I'll be grinding in multiple Pokemon runs at the same time. Like I, and then I also do the video a day thing on my channel. Of, I've been doing a video a day minimum for eight years. Uh, so that's like unrelated to the Pokemon stuff. So like I do like 70 to 80 hour work weeks. Um, no days off because that's lame. Uh, so <laughs> I just grind. I, I grind a lot. How are you alive? <laughs> um, this is what I was built to do. Uh, I I am the most patient man in the world, apparently. I just, I don't know. I, I have superhuman endurance. Can you imagine if, like, there's an alternate timeline where, like, there's Gattaca, but then, like, they have people designed to be streamers? It's like, this man has endless <laughs> patience and everything. This man and he's, like, raised up in society, becomes a streamer, and he's, that's all he knows. I want to write why that there's story. Like, there's, all this, there's all this fan art out, out there of me standing next to a Wobbuffet, which is a Pokemon, because part of it is that I did a Wobbuffet challenge that people really liked a long time ago when I was first starting to blow up. But also, in the Pokédex, Wobbuffet is referred to as the patient Pokemon, so people say it's my spirit animal. Oh, no. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're genetically predisposed, you know, Gettica-style, to, uh, to grind. 
Is there any particular grinding <laughs> mechanics that you do not like? I mean, you kind of have to sift through it because. Yes. Okay. Okay, generation <laughs> generation five of Pokemon has my least favorite grinding mechanic. So this is why, like, I I I'm genuinely considering never doing a generation five Pokemon game again on the show, because by the nature of the beast of these challenges, um, if I have a team of one guy, which is a lot of the challenges, then um, it really punishes you hard with this specific thing I'm about to explain. But it's also horrendous if you have a team of six guys, because if I have a team of six guys, they're also very weak guys that need to be overleveled. So, what it is, is in your typical Pokemon game, how much experience you require to level up um, is based on the Pokemon. A Pokemon is part of one of four or five categories of what how much experience they require between each individual level. There's like slow, f uh, medium slow, medium fast, fast, uh, erratic, and another one that has a word just like erratic, like random, but they're actually different. It's confusing. That is. So every Pokemon is in one of those categories. Now, how much experience you get for a battle depends on the mostly in most of the games, the base health of the Pokemon that you're beating. And if it's the final evolution of its evolution line or not. So something that would give very little experience is a Caterpie because it's a low health bug in its first form. Something that give you a lot of experience, infamously some of the most experience, is a um a chancy chancy it it's only one form at least in gen one uh so it counts as final form and it has tons of base health so lots of experience in generation five they changed it generation five was starting with pokemon black and white uh on the ds in that they made a mechanic where if you are below the level of the thing that you're fighting you will get a bit of bonus experience towards that pokemon if you're above the level, then you get less. Here's the problem. All of a sudden, if you are a casual player of Pokemon, you're probably building a team not based around the best types, but the Pokemon that you casually like the most based on design. That means yeah. you're going to have a type lopsided team, naturally, because you're going to gravitate towards types you like. And thus, you're going to be predisposed towards grinding. However, because the, the gym leader's teams are balanced to deal with a, a varied team and a team that is just made up of things that you counter because they by that point they're like okay if you're electric gym leader we need to deal with ground types we don't want to make it that easy so they have like flying electric things all of a sudden they're outsmarting the casual player and so you need to get to a higher level but you need to grind and you grinding to a level above them the, the wild Pokemon in the area are going to be a lower level than the gym, which means you have to level on things a lower level than you. Now, there's a rule in that game. Someone did the math. If you're fighting things 12 lo levels lower than you, which is not at all unheard of if you're grinding for something like the uh, Elite Four, then you have completely undone any advantage you've ever had in the game of fighting things a higher level above you. And it is exponential and horrible to the point that I have done challenges like beating all of Generation 2, an infamously long one, with a Sunkern, which is the lowest stats Pokemon in the entire franchise, in one week. I did Pokemon Fire Red with one Magikarp in about a week and a half. To beat Pokemon Black and White with one Bidoof, a pretty good Pokemon, took me two weeks. To beat uh, Black and White with a team of six different typed bug Pokemon that were all first form, so low stats, but really good abilities, really good moves, wicked type coverage. This should be a solid team. 
was the only time I ever had to miss a week because I wasn't prepared and I didn't think it would take that long because I had to level up six Pokemon and they had to be such a high level. And I was leveling on things like 30 levels below me, so I was getting like a quarter of the regular experience. If this were any other Pokemon game before this, I would have had it done in like five days. Instead, I believe it took me 12. It is one of the worst grinding mechanics I have ever found in my life, and I understand the idea behind it. But it punches casual players and super hardcore players. It is literally only good for you if you're coming into Pokemon and you want to play to win and you're building the best team you can. If you're min-maxing, basically, that is what it helps, which is not almost anyone playing it. So where on the on the Pokemon Company doll did did where on the doll did the Pokemon Company hurt you? <laughs> Everywhere. If- <laughs> Everywhere, like it, it's they push me down the stairs. I can't point to all the bruises. So they basically just made it so overall, just the more you grind, the the least you'll get. It's just, it's just an ever spinning wheel, and it, everything just takes forever longer. Just the they they messed up in the algorithm somewhere where the experience just doesn't come as it should. It should, right? They had an idea, and. They had an idea at Game Freak, and they are all like, oh yeah, that's really great. People sometimes complain about grinding. This will make it easier to get up to the level of the gym leader. And then Mm. it it turns out by happenstance that every person at that table was wrong. And they're also bad people. (laughs) And so that's how that that happened. Um, Game Freak are bad people. uh, Madrai Bread 2019. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, I, I, I... I think we've gone through that, and I think everybody in in chat are, I think somebody said 800% more knowledgeable about Pokemon mechanics now, so. I can teach you so much. I have 20, (laughs) I I have 21 Pokemon challenges out. I am editing the 22nd one after the stream, and I just finished the 23rd one earlier today, and I'm going on the 24th one tomorrow. Mm. That's wild. Um, That's a lot of Pokemon. Yeah, I mean, it, it, from what from what I know, I, I obviously don't grind that much as you much as you. You probably be the most uh, grind uh, grind savvy person in in this group that I know about. I just know that recently, what I've run into um, are monetized is mon- the monetized grind basically. Like uh, Red Dead Redemption Two, I I jumped into multiplayer because I kind of wanted the you know interaction with other players. Like I played some poker games with other players, won a bit of money. And just because it's it's online currency, it feels a little bit more valuable. Like I could actually spend it on something and compete mm-hmm. against other players. So I kind of like that more open world, sandboxy kind of feel. And oh my god, that game is grindy. You know, not probably not as grindy as as Pokemon Challenge, but uh, they have two currencies. <clears throat> uh, one currency you can get fairly easily, and you can buy uh, guns and items and stuff like that but unfortunately most all weapons if not all weapons are level locked or rank locked mm-hmm. you have to rank up rank up to even to be able to be, even buy them but secondly uh ranking up requires you to just do a lot of different you know activities to just rank you know leveling etc you know so it's a kind of weird to level that level lock that many weapons and things behind that even when you also need currency i'm not really I, i'm of, i'm, I'm confused really, it- isn't isn't Red Dead like nineteen oh ten, or sorry, yeah, nineteen ten, AD, or around that? It might be eighteen hundreds. I don't remember the exact year, but around that, yeah. Because uh, I oh wait, Red Red Dead two is, is a prequel, right? I believe so. I... Because because Red Dead one takes place right before is like nineteen ten or something. It's like right before World War One. 
Yeah. Um, but so so Red Dead, if it's if if Red Dead Two is a prequel, then what what is like five ten years before the the first game something I like didn't that? Jump into the story. I because because the, the only currency movie. would have been the American dollar. Like there was one currency in America yeah, by yeah. that point. The, the currencies in the game is the American dollar, which yeah is fairly accurate for the time. Like you can buy a gun for like you know fifty bucks. Because yeah, because you know, a dollar back then was actually worth a lot. Like it, a big, yeah, you, missions quite often give you a couple bucks. You know, okay, Red Dead One is nineteen eleven. Okay, that sounds right. Three years before World War One. Um, right. And uh, RDR Two apparently is in eighteen eighteen ninety nine. Eighteen ninety nine. Okay, it was just the American dollar. Like it was uniform. It was completely uniform by then. Like even though the government didn't have a whole lot of sway over Texas, is where the game takes place, right? Yeah, um, and I, but uh, in the game they also have, um, at least in the multiplayer, they have gold bars, which is basically their monetizable cu- uh, currency. And to be able to unlock, oh. to be able to unlock, the frustration I'm running into is I want to be a bounty hunter, right? To be able to mm-hmm. unlock bounty hunting, you need thirty gold bars, at least twenty-five or thirty gold bars, right? You get fractions of gold bars for completing missions. They have a a decimal point on that thing. You can get fractions of gold bars for completing missions. You got to complete a lot of missions to be able to pay 30 gold bars to unlock bounty hunting. And that was like what I want to play. But oh, lo and behold, they have a catalog. You open up the catalog. Hey, you want need you need gold bars? 20 bucks. And it's like, okay, yeah, I see why you made the game really, really grindy. So that that's it's been my recent peeve. Yeah, I, I disagree with it too, and I won't I won't pay the money, but same time mm-hmm. it takes a lot of time and not everything gives you gold bars. Some activities do, some some don't. Like I was gonna say maybe I can I, I actually cleaned out a couple of games of poker, but that just got me uh that just got me dollars, not bars. So things like that, I'm like, okay, this is basically gems in a, with a different skin. So unfortunately, yeah. uh we see that kind of mobile game microtransaction influence kind of seeping into games. That's what I would that's what kind of ticks me off a little bit. I can understand why they do it. Makes them a lot of money. The shark cards I think made them more money later on than actual game sales with GTA five, but it is a it is a trend I'm not particularly happy with. Yeah. I think for me to follow on with that with the uh achieve with the, the grinding I should say, um the only the closest thing that I can speak about is rep grinds in MMOs. Um in my time with uh uh, current World of Warcraft last year, like rep grinding was. It's it's there's a different like grinding. I remember there was another essay, a video essay guy pointed out how grinding in a video game is a state of mind. It's not really the mechanic; it's the state of mind. But obviously, a lot of people can consider the same mechanic to be grindy. Um, but rep grinds in themselves are just like, especially when the goal is like you should have this. Because then you can progress and you have to repeat the same task over and over, hand in the same token or whatever, just to get like 20 XP out of a thousand or something. And then what they do is they have a weekend where it's like, oh, double rep grind weekend. And it's like, oh, great. There goes my weekend. Because <laughs> yeah. you feel like you're forced to, to commit yeah. yourself to be in that treadmill for the next eight hours. I think it's Which, one of the billions of reasons why my mom stopped playing retail and just started using uh, the the private servers. Because God, yeah, but yeah, that's they've always talked about how they'll fix rep grinds and they'll be like, oh, we'll find like some cool, interesting way. And it, it kind of knocked me a little bit when like they said like we we figured out a solution. 
we'll, we'll make it easier, more XP, more, um, you know, reputation per hand in. I'm like, that's not fixing it. <laughs> Let's dumb it down. Take away all the feeling of earning something. Yeah. Sorry, now, uh, now we're just complaining about retail. Wow, it's awful. <laughs> we can move away if you want <laughs> quickly to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Please, let's move on from retail. Wow, it's so yeah, depressing. Uh, look, that, that's something I've dodged this whole time as well. So I, I good. I, I, I've heard, I've heard great and terrible things. So <laughs> yeah, c- yeah, classic Wow is pretty good, but I I can't in good conscience support right now because I have family in Hong Kong. Oh wow. Yeah, I I refuse I refuse to pay them any money until at least Blitzchung is uh unsuspended. At least. All right. So let's see. We've got some more here. Uh, grinding. Kind of covered um, long runways. We kind of that was similar to the um, just walking and talking cutscenes and unskippable stuff. Um, this is one interesting topic. This could actually almost be a, a whole topic and a, a you know podcast topic in itself, but um. We're starting to see games, you know, there was that whole open world kind of uh, huge explosion of open world games kind of respawned. Like, uh, you know, Ubisoft games, uh, Assassin's Creed, things like that. Then we got like Infamous and we got all these other games. Like every game had to have open world, open world this. And some games benefit from it, I think. And some games just kind of had it because it was something they needed to put into their, their features list. But uh, yeah. we're seeing again. Uh, you mentioned earlier, actually, uh, Griffin Muffin, that um, Greedfall had almost like a semi semi hub world uh, uh, design, and mm. I, I think there's benefits in to both of them. Obviously, open world is a bit more expan- expansive, more exploration, things like that. But some of the more tighter game design I've seen is more of a hub world, like the System Shock, the the, the Deus Ex type games, where they have a smaller but very tightly designed world that mm. every crevice is and, filled with something mm. interesting you know and to um to quickly jump off it's like yeah i'm talking about this very subject in my video essay for outer worlds is discussing how what they can do in a hub world compared to an open world because that's one thing that a lot of people critiqued outer worlds for was like oh it's not an open world game it's like no no it's a bit more um confined but also if you look at vampire masquerade that's relatively confined as well in a hub world rpg and um there are advantages to both it depends on several factors of why you want to do it on oh, someone points out witcher 2 and witcher, th- uh, witcher 3 it's very stark example witcher 2 was very hub world very linear and on the rail but witcher 3 just went poof, opened up that world and was like you can run from one place to the other in like you know I can't. I remember they did it on a feature at once, but that's that thing where you could just travel in one direction and have it not stop. Yeah, I'd say like the density of excitement, the density of of quality content is is definitely something like a hub world game. You don't have necessarily as many things to do. Like there's a finite amount of things to do, but an open world you potentially have, depending on how how it's built and randomization, random encounters, things like that. You could have potentially infinite amount of time to spend in there. But your, you know, your quality content per hour may be much uh, sparser in an open world, you know, compared to a, a hub world, which has very specific uh, areas you generally only visit once or do in one specific way. So, yeah, I, I think I, I've seen a lot of burnout 
among people people are saying i'm sick of open world games i'd rather have confined spaces give me a give me a really good linear game and i'm like i don't think you're really i don't think you dislike open world games i think you dislike boring filler content exactly that's exactly it like open world games have so much potential and i hate to be one of those youtubers that praises witcher 3 but i just look to (laughs) witcher 3 as an open world game and i'm like yeah like they did it so well in my opinion how like you literally just walk walking down and just quest triggers and it's such an interesting quest in itself and not like my goats i just hate to use the goat analogy again but like my goat's missing you know it's always like you walk and you you see something i think in the one quest in yeah it's, you, you were going to say something uh those goat problems are relatable ah <laughs> sorry i was just making a joke um, okay but but for open world stuff potentially rocking i haven't played much Daggerfall yet, but I walked in town and I need to find something, so I flagged down a couple people and I asked them about it, and they told me where to go, and it felt like I was walking through a city, and I got into the building and did the thing, and it's the most pointless thing in the world, and I loved every second <laughs> of it because it felt like I was in a real city. And even though I can probably just like wander for a really long time and like the vast majority of what's around me is useless, they found a way to make an open world feel meaningful to me in a way that I had never felt before playing any other open world game. Where it's not this tiny thing that's supposed to be a big city, I'm supposed to pretend like it's a big city. It was a big city, and it was open. And I had to ask for directions, and it didn't feel like a pain in the ass at all. It felt kind of cool. Yeah. I think a lot of people, um, I know Nerdslayer has talked about this a bit sometimes, how like VR and open world RPGs inevitably should meet at one point, and it would be like this, abs- it would be, it's a very utopian idea of having this game of like, you enter a world like that's almost like a second reality, and it's like, you have that RPG aspect, and having something like, Mod, like a contemporary dag- Daggerfall with VR and everything updated with graphically and everything like that, that sounds like this absolutely mind-blowing experience because Daggerfall, I've, I've watched you stream uh, Daggerfall Indigo and it definitely does seem like this. it's an extremely immersive experience. Like you miss, like you can miss times. It's like, oh, the boat sailed or like you, you, someone's walked away. You're like, crap, what am I going to do now? You know, and you actually, there's consequences and you know, to get directions, you need to ask the right person. It's just so, so complex. Cool. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a very, uh, it, it's a game you can kind of stumble into an adventure. You just, you just watch one thing happen. You're like, oh man, I missed that date. Let me go this way. Oh, I ran into this encounter. This guy flagged me down. It's, it's, it's systems upon systems upon systems, which um, may not, it's very dated. It may not all work together well, but it, yeah, you're right. It, it definitely has that it feels like it's one of the it's probably the only fantasy rpg i've actually played which actually feels like you're walking through a one-to-one scale of a city like some of the cities are actually you know you could count the population it's like oh this is this is technically a city like there's supposed to be if you count all npcs that can spawn in the whole world it's about close to a million npcs you know in the game which you know resembles a real country whereas most if you actually take all the npcs that in most rpgs that it it ranges in the in the dozens or hundreds, you know, maybe. So it, it's it's interesting, and and yeah, there's a lot of repetition, a lot of stuff like that, which obviously need to be handled. And not all people appreciate the kind of random, kind of generated nature of that. But if you could if you could take that kind of premise and then just elevate it with more more variety, I think that the 
and you know that's that's would be that'd be my ideal fantasy rpg is something along those lines but yeah i mean it, again it's so much easier to get a more curated experience when you're dealing with a smaller a smaller uh scope and that's why yeah. uh the kind of hub world seems more attractive is because you get a very curated experience where things can go one way or the other and that's one thing i noticed playing uh outer worlds for a few hours i haven't played through the whole game yet but i noticed it was definitely more confined area than something like uh fallout new vegas or whatnot but uh because of that it, it did it definitely had more had more you know interesting things per mi- square mile per se you know yeah it it feels rather it feels condensed and also a lot of like you can walk from a to b and you'll find notice something that you know kind of attracts your eye and you're like oh what's that or like it because there's a lot more to kind of cram into one area so you're more more than likely to bump into things and on top of that you have your obsidian style well not obsidian your 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 like character your companion interactions so like no journey from point a to b feels boring like you always feel stimulated along unlike i would as i've mentioned before greedfall where like you just run between zones and you just hold down that button just run jump up things and just just nothing happened which yeah. made the world feel so lonely but then at the same time for greedfall it's kind of like yeah this world is only inhabited by natives and maybe that's maybe that could be the effect they were going for but i don't know it, it doesn't create a good experience for the player it's it would be great for like maybe some other tv show or something like that to have that sense of you know open space and loneliness but for a player like they need something to yeah so yeah and i've heard arguments for and against that like you could argue that that for like a that stranding i haven't played it but i've watched a, a few hours just casually watched it people streaming it and 90 percent of that game is just traveling through empty wilderness like yeah. you know that it, there's there's things to cross there's you have to make bridges you have to like climb over rocks you have to make sure that a uncannily amount of equipment on your back doesn't get tipped over or fall or whatever and they're like there's mechanics along the way but it's pretty much just getting from point a to point b you know just traveling through a big empty mostly empty kind of wasteland so it's it's a you can make that compelling and there are like some compelling mechanics in it but uh is that you know you can get almost almost become like an art critic about it where it's like is that intentional frustration is that intentional like tdm is that intentional solace and it's like okay you know, maybe if you're looking at it as an art, it's kind of like it's, it says something about something. But if people want an exciting adventure, that's not necessarily how you do it. And unless people really, really enjoy just carrying things from point A to point B, I mean, it's it's seems to be the longest uh, fetch quest, uh, you know, turned into a game that you could possibly design. You know, to bash it too much, but y- y- there's and also like, working in logistics, like looking at something like Death Stranding, just makes me like go. Huh. Uh, like, <laughs> he's carrying all this stuff. I'm like, please don't drop it. Do you have all the proper, uh, like, oh, do you have the consignment note for that thing? And <laughs> I get, I get nervous watching him carry that much stuff. Yeah, like I saw this one where uh, the guy was literally carrying uh, a a human parcel on his back. Like she was like had this yeah. like, little gizmo that she was like sitting on his back, and he was carrying a a person all the way across, like on foot to this other place. And I'm like, my God, that just it, there is a sort of certain stress and and. You could you could admire the game to kind of generate that sort of uh, tension, I suppose. But uh, you know, I it's weird that some people praise that game to high heaven because of that. When 
mm. as far as I understand, listening to any forum, any any uh, YouTuber, any like you know com- community player, I've heard that's ex- that's the exact like epitome of what people hate about games are just pointless like trekking with you know fetch quests or whatever without any without any context you know but uh yeah i mean i I said there's good things and bad things about concise you know you know hub worlds like i I still think deus ex is you know despite its age still one of the most articulately designed games ever just because every level has so many different ways you can you can manipulate it and, and beat it and and replay it you know same with system shock and and other Mm. immersive sims it's not really a very good term for it but that's what they're kind of known for but uh yeah i mean i guess it if you have a big world just make it make it enjoyable to play through make it dense enough with interesting content or at least utilize that that scale for something like i think daggerfall uses the scale to simulate the feeling of a real world you know Mm. you don't have to travel every single inch of Daggerfall, they have fast travel, you know? But if you want to, you can. It's mm. there. You can you yeah. can literally walk from one side to the other. A guy, a YouTuber did it, and it took him like a week, you know, to walk from one side to the other, to the other in the whole like a literal, a human, a real life week to walk from one side to the next. But, you know, you don't have to spend that much time if you don't want to. I think that it's, it's a, it, it there, uh, I tried to, I tried to I was working on a video. It probably won't be out anytime soon, but I was trying to isolate that that kind of uh, feeling. But the, an RPG, I think, isn't very effective when you know that there's only one real when there's only one real real choice to do. Like even if you're given the other option, if there's only one real choice, it doesn't really feel like you're doing anything. But if you know yeah. there's another choice or another way to do something, your choices feel a lot more interesting and more impactful. Like you actually made one. If if yeah. in the end, if yet if Yes and no both mean yes. You're kind of like, okay, whatever. Does I'm it's inevitable. But if you know that mm-hmm. you could actually if there even if you don't go if you don't go left, the fact that you can go left, there's that option to go left, it's more interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, um that's what um one of the main things behind I forget the name of Stanley's Parable. It's what like mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. one of the core philosophies behind Stanley's Parable that giving players the choice and then even though the game's saying like you should go this way it would be very good for you to go this way and you go the other way it's the fact that the player has the choice to go that way and then the story adjusts to it is why stanley's parable stanley's parable is always looked at this at this it's a very i don't know how to describe stanley's parable to like other people sometimes because it's almost just like a thought experiment within a video game. It's the yep. most meta it's, game ever. It's it's very meta. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mm. meta comedy routine. Mm. Exactly. It, uh, it it takes it knows all the tricks that game play, games do and plays with that. It, it it plays with your expectations in a narrative form. Like it it knows that you subconsciously kind of know all of the these things in games because you've played games before. It knows all these exactly. things. Exactly. And where Yahtzee would... doing oh sorry, you continue. Uh no, no, it's fine. It's just it yeah, it just uh, it 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 plays with all the, the meta cliches and, and good and bad tropes of game design. It just puts all those together and, and, and screws with you in that way. And so when you think you need to know you think you've outsmarted the game, it actually has built up your your expectations and to a point where it knows you're going to try to try the other thing, and then it throws you another curveball. You know, it, it's mm. uh, 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 it, 
I don't remember exactly who designed the game, um, but it, it kind of seems like it's almost like somebody who had either played a ton of games or made a ton of games decided to kind of mess with the formula a bit and, and put that together. But yeah, it's definitely, if not a, a particularly great game in terms of crazy new gameplay mechanics, it's a very interesting narrative and, uh, like you said, a thought experiment. Yeah. yeah. Because, yeah, Yahtzee Kroshaw's doing his, um, I think he's doing a challenge at the moment of creating a certain amount of games in a year, I think it was, if I remember correctly, or a certain time of months. But he's That's creating, cool. like, rapid-fire games just to... But he's, each game is having, like, a kind of a different thought experiment with it. Like, one game that I managed to have a look at was one where it's like, do not, it's like, do not press the button or the cat dies. And it will play out this narrative of, like, oh, the cat graduates and goes to university, uh, gra- graduates and goes to get a job, and that cat gets a job, and then it raises a family. And, like, every once in a while, something will try and press the button, you have to slap it away or have the choice. To- <laughs> That's it, 12 games in 12 months, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he makes a lot of good games. I like a lot of his games. Mm. And it's all Consuming he, Shadow, Ecstasy yeah. Sauerkraut. The dog dies, sorry. I thought it was cat, maybe it's just because it's like, <laughs> what did my cat? Oh, there she is. Okay, never mind. Um, but yeah, it's a similar point of having a thought experiment of like, of, of narrative, basically. It's um, really good stuff. But yeah, we were talking about hub worlds and, and open worlds, but <laughs> it just went into metagaming so, or something. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah uh, that one, that's not even my fault. <laughs> that, wasn't, that, wasn't, that, was, that was not my dry bread's fault this time. Yeah, This um, time. Yeah, we've actually gone through a lot of these. There's a couple others. Um, I think yeah, there's like Chance mechanics, loot boxes. I've kind of tiptoed around that a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. New New Game Plus. You guys have thoughts on that? New Game Plus is kind of a emerging trend. I mean, it's cool as hell. Yeah, I think it's. I think it was it's, an emerging trend. Yeah, yeah, it's been around forever. It's I think awesome. it's. It's kind of. I think if it's dressed though. up a bit better. Yeah. yeah. If it's dressed up better, I could play it. But usually, there's not a lot of appeal, especially for like narrative heavy games. Like, um, Witcher did it, and I was going to do it, but then I'm like, I've kind of already played it, but it takes, but, you know, a couple years down the line, like, I have, I have Witcher 3 installed, and whenever I have a moment where, like, I feel like, you know, just getting back into Witcher, or, like, I'm waiting for another game to be released, I'll hop back into Witcher 3, but I don't have the saves on this computer, so I'm starting off from normal, but if I progress through it, complete it, and then have the option of New Game Plus, that would be pretty good, but it's also, like, it's also very easy for a developer to add it and then have it as content because you're essentially just, it's just another version of, it's just another playthrough of the game, except from some things are added, removed, etc. So. Yeah, I, I like the concept. If it's, it has to be different enough though. I'm not uh, generally not, like aside from a couple games that are just so, so wildly different each playthrough that you can kind of play it again and again, but if a game is pretty much like one narrative where level one is the same, level two is the same, it, it takes a lot for me to replay a game at, at, if I haven't, if I've played the game recently. My most uh, recent example that I can think of for a pretty narratively uh, narrow game would have been uh, actually Resident Evil 2 Remake. Um, they did an interesting thing. You can, you can either play uh, Leon or Claire, and their campaigns are fairly similar. They're pretty similar. They have different dialogue and things like that. but the cool thing is, is that they've got playthrough B, which is their version of New Game Plus, and it uses a lot of the same environments, but everything's different. Uh, ammo, uh, locked doors, 
uh, keys, uh, enemy placements, and certain areas are on playthrough A only, and certain areas are on playthrough B only. So you're basically exploring the same kind of police station, mansion, etc. But it's everything's just different a little bit. And so they can reuse a lot of the same assets. So it's not like building a whole new mm-hmm. game. It's probably, mm-hmm. a, a, an, honestly, a fraction of the development time as, as building the first playthrough. But it's different enough that things catch you. Like, you know, uh, you, you might have walked down one hallway the first time, and it's like, oh, that one's pretty safe. It might be one little zombie or whatever. Walk that down the next time, there's a crawler there. And you're like, oh, crap, that's very different from the first time. I can no longer rely on my, my uh, memory of the first playthrough anymore. Everything's very different. So I think that was a great way of uh, doing that. And I, again, I played playthrough A and then immediately started playthrough B shortly mm-hmm. after that. So it was actually pretty interesting. So if games, that, that, that's a bit harder to, to scale up to something like a full-on you know, open-world RPG. But you have to kind of introduce something different, I think. Because if, if you essentially just replay the game again, then what's the point? Like, what the games do is they, they keep your character level with all your abilities and start another game at, at a higher difficulty, essentially. That, that's fine. Yeah, that's, it's fine, but it's like, it's kind of like not a, sort of not the point when you play, do, do another playthrough. Like another playthrough is, oh, I'll try this out, is usually the approach you have for new art, or doing a new playthrough for an RPG. So having stuff stay there is like, oh, that's neat. And there's also stuff, uh, I think Batman, the Arkham games, did a new game plus, and it's like, oh, you get all the gadgets from the get-go, if I remember correctly. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool, I guess. That just means you breeze through the game really quickly. And, but does, does that come... I never started. I never did it, because it was such a weird concept to grasp. So I was like, oh, thank you for telling me I have new game plus. <laughs> like, that's nice. So play this how familiar now. are you guys with the original Resident Evil 2? I'm not too familiar with it. I, um, I don't think I played the, through the whole thing, but I did play it back on the PS1 back in the day, yeah. Okay, the original Resident Evil 2 did the the path scenario A and scenario B thing a thousand times better than the remake. This is something that I actually know quite a bit about the remake because I am friends with a lot of horror game speedrunners due to my own horror game speedrunning. And so I, I know that quite in depth, uh, that it was a massive disappointment to a lot of Resident Evil 2 fans, where a lot of them really, really liked the game, but they didn't like the B scenario, because Mm. Resident Evil 2 did B scenario so phenomenally well that the idea behind it was you play either Claire or Leon, and you do scenario A. When you beat the game, you what you then do is that save file becomes scenario B of the other character, and what you're doing now is you pick them, and you're playing through the entire story of where were they during your scenario A. And it's different. Like, so different that they're going to different places, there are different bosses, there are different plot things, because people might be alive or not alive, depending on the actions of your previous playthrough with the other character. To the point that there are four distinct playthroughs of the game with different parts of plot different bosses, different locations that you visit, entirely based around your decisions the first time you played. And you had no warning of this when you did your scenario A. So you beat the game, the credits roll, you think it's over, then you unlock scenario B, and all of a sudden everything you just did has has consequences for your entirely new playthrough. Whereas in the remake, 
probably because of the scope of the game like that that is a very daunting task to make what i just described there yeah. they didn't do that in fact it was a very very watered down version of scenario a scenario b so like there's actually a playthrough of that game that is considered canonical that is scenario a is claire and then scenario b is leon that's the only way the plot could make sense with the other games but you could play the game four different you could do four full playthroughs and have it be drastically different as a result of your actions um in a way where you don't even know what you need to change all you know all you need to know is i'll beat a fresh file with claire and beat a fresh file with leon and then when i go back in the there it'll it'll say it'll call it b and switch my character and now i've got a whole new game to play with some familiar locations and that is incredible like you know the Mr. X, the guy stalking you yeah. through Resident Evil 2? He's B scenario only. He was, you played through the whole game in Resident Evil 2, uh, and then when you do the B scenario, you're Leon or you're Claire, whoever you didn't use the first time, you're going through these hallways and you're like, okay, I feel safe. I know, I know the ins and outs of the department. All of a sudden, this dude crashes through a wall. That's horrifying. <laughs> that, it is horrifying. He is scary as hell. He didn't have the dumb hat. Um, and like... Don't get me wrong, the, the X thing looks cool in the remake of 2. I'm sure I'll like it when I play it. Uh, I need great. to get around to it. It looks like it looks like Yeah, it looks like a really fun remake. I, I'm excited to play it, but um in in res in the original Resident Evil 2, it's literally like you just beat the whole game and then you suddenly discover this is whole new mode. The game's way longer than it's like when you beat uh Pokemon Gold for the first time, the credits roll, you you're the new Pokemon champion. Elm calls you in and you're like Here's a ticket to Kanto, and you go there, and literally the entire map of the first game is there with new boss fights. And it's like, this game is way bigger than I had any idea, and it just blows your child mind without yeah. the murder charge. So I... <laughs> you, the same thing happens with Resident Evil 2 back in the day of, you go back in, and you're like, whoa, there's way more to this than I thought. And then you play a little bit, and you're like, okay, it's still familiar, though. I know what I'm doing. And then a dude crashes through the wall, and the game is real different. Yeah. And you start to see, like, oh, this isn't where it was because, like, I I opened this gate on the previous character. Like, there's a whole different puzzle for me now. It's incredible. Yeah. I, Thank I, you for I, dropping this mad knowledge, Madurai Break. You're welcome. <laughs> no, no, I, I really enjoy the RE2 remake. I didn't, I don't think I ever completed all of the original RE2, even though it was probably one of my favorites of the original uh, tank control mm -hmm. engine games. Um, Tank. Everybody said Thomas the Tank Engine in the chat, so I, I dubbed in the Tank Engine, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Tank Control games. Uh, One day we will play Outbreak together, and it'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I like the originals, and uh, I didn't realize that it, it it had sort of a it remembered your first playthrough and, and altered the game mm -hmm. to the next playthrough. Yeah, as far as I know, so cool. Play, playthrough A and B in in RE2 remake is is static. Like no matter what you do in, in playthrough yeah. one, playthrough two is is its own thing, which that sounds yeah, awesome. Like, I, I do like that idea. Like how cool would that be if like everything you took in playthrough one wouldn't be there for Claire and playthrough two or vice versa. Yeah, you that's know. part of it. It's like what's what's laying around is different because you might have looted something differently. Like in in canon of RE two, two playthroughs back to back in sequence are what the canon is. Whereas in the remake, it's just one thing. Like one thing yeah. doesn't affect the other in any way. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. I think being... that's actually the. Sorry, go ahead. I think that's the core of this. You know, having new game plus actually means something, mm -hmm. or at least a second playthrough is to have it mean more by 
actually having it mirror one another or having it interact in some way consequences yeah. from one another like someone pointed out undertale one playthrough the second playthrough because it's a meta game people will actually reference what you did in the first playthrough stuff like that um i think of new game plus is to be considered to be taken more seriously as like added content rather than just more content that it needs to be more significant it needs to actually interact a bit more with the first playthrough with the player with other worlds etc you know yeah you could do, you could make a really interesting not to kind of find attention but you can make a really interesting game playing on that sort of mirror uh gameplay like imagine if uh you played through the game uh with one player or whatever let's say let's use the resident evil uh like playstation slash you know mansion type scenario you played through with one character and you play through again and there's like your other character going through and doing the motions that you did mm-hmm. but you can see from like another character's viewpoint or whatever like how how like they they would actually start being taking items and stuff in real time and you had to like try to grab before them or you know all sorts of weird stuff like that or depending on how well you did in your first playthrough will make your second playthrough harder or easier you know how mm-hmm. effective you were at killing zombies in the first playthrough will make your second playthrough harder or easier. Like things like that. If you really did it, I, I don't know how much they went into the original RE2 on that regard, but that is a really interesting well, idea how you could actually play with Here's it. an example of that. Um, there's a boss in RE2 that's a giant alligator in the sewers. Um, it's mostly there because it's cool. I've actually watched a playthrough of it with one of the developers there, and they explained it as it was cool. Oh, cool. <laughs> there's no reason why there's a giant alligator there. It's not even a zombie. But, um, with a giant alligator, you're running away from it for screen and screen and screen until you have to confront it. And there's two ways to beat it. Either you keep shooting it as many times as you can on each screen, and then you run away and you keep shooting and you run away, and eventually it'll back off. Or, at the end, uh, you can get it to grab a canister in its mouth and shoot the canister and it blows its head off. When you do the beast scenario, if you'd wounded it until it ran away... It's coming back for the next human it finds, which is you on your next playthrough with the other character, and it's pissed. But if you blew its head off with a canister, it's not there. It's dead. Wow. Mm. So there's a whole boss fight right there that exists or doesn't exist based on what you did in your previous playthrough. That is pretty cool. I like that uh, that idea, yeah. I can see why people would be disappointed. I, I, I think they were trying to... I'm actually surprised that RIT remake ever even existed because it didn't seem like that was going to happen. So they did a great job with it, in my opinion. But yeah, mm-hmm. I can see why. Uh, I always complain when when games get a sequel or a remake or whatever, and they take out certain key features or bits of depth yeah. like that. So, you know, that's I, why RE One remake was beautiful. Yeah, it was one best remake I've played in my life. It's they added stuff and it felt like it could have been there in the first place. It's so well done. It's. I think it's the best remake I've ever played in my life. Is Ari One's remake so good? It's unbelievable. I actually got to play that a little bit. Um, my wife was next to me as I played it, and I'm like, this is this is so like old old school. Like I I didn't get into PlayStation One because I did only got a PS2. That was like my earliest console was a PS2. Other than that, I've just been PC. So like mm-hmm. when you talk about these PS1 games, I only kind of know about them actively. I never played them upon release or even around the time. But I remember thinking, like, even when I played Medieval, I played Medieval at PAX um, this year, the remake. remake. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, these controls, like, they're so sporadic. Like, I move in one direction, he's like, whoa, it flies. I'm like, I am not used to this. But someone in the background's like, yeah, this is how, like, PS1 games were. I'm like, 
Oh, well, I played a couple of PS1 games, but they just weren't in that typical style, apparently. Yeah, games back then, they were, like, extremely responsive. Like, if you turn right, your character wouldn't do a, a, a dramatic turning animation and start wandering right. It would just be like, all of a sudden, you're flipped, and you're now going right. Yeah. Like, it was very, very hyper-responsive because there were no, like, uh, transition animations or anything like that. So it, it is definitely a more gamey, less less realistic, you know, looking experience. But it, it is mm. interesting. Um, I think we have definitely kind of an exception with remake culture, both in movies and games, you know, uh, and TV shows and stuff where we're just remaking absolutely everything because of We nostalgia. seriously are. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, have you looked at how many RTS remakes there are? Uh, yeah, there's... It's wild. It's crazy. But, uh, you know... There are some games I think could could use a second a second uh, once over to get you know audience. Some games honestly aren't aren't aside from graphics are actually quite competent and ahead of their time. You know, or some games you're like, oh yeah, this could have to need some real works. And I think that's where you draw the line between like a a 100 pretty much true to form remake like RE1 remake um, mm-hmm. that's like pretty much taking the exact same game, adding a couple things, and just you know better presentation. Or you could call well, that a remaster. It, it actually it actually added tons of game mechanics that were okay. fantastic, but uh, like okay. it added it added entire areas, it added entire plot lines, um, it added uh, entire things about replayability, including going back through the own same mansion, like doors that the handle could break through enough uses. Um, uh, they they added a red. Um, Oh, I'm blanking on the name now, but when you go back through the, the mansion after you've mostly cleared it out, after getting through the first boss area, some of the zombies' corpses that are laying around Crimson Heads, some of the zombies that were on the ground may end up becoming Crimson Heads, which are faster, more dangerous zombies that have gotten back up because you didn't burn the bodies. There's all kinds of mechanics added to the game that really add so much to it, and they all feel so natural. Where, you know, I also beat the original, and it felt so natural when I first played the... Uh, the remake, that I was genuinely second-guessing myself on if some of the things were in the original or not, because everything felt so like it was supposed to be there in the first place. It was that well done. So, And then, you know, visually it looked beautiful and it controlled well and everything, but even the new mechanics they made were... It, it really did feel like it was supposed to be there, and they did an amazing job. When it comes to remaking games, though, as far as immaculate of a job they did on that... I think that usually the games that need to have a remake the most are games that were ahead of their time in a way that the hardware held them back. An example of that, I would say, is if you're going to remake a bunch of Resident Evil games, remake Outbreak and Outbreak File 2. I understand they didn't sell very well uh, outside of Japan, but they are very fantastic games, and they were held back by how uh, as great as they were and as good as the single player was, because the AI was actually quite good it's team-based games though and so the multiplayer was by far the most fun part but it was playstation 2 multiplayer server-based playstation 2 multiplayer like the load times between doors were was very poor and that really mattered in online where you know you had to be responding to people there was no voice chat at all so it's very hard to communicate with people there was only a text chat in the lobby before you start um playing that game nowadays on emulator where the load times are lightning quick and the game emulates perfectly with, like, no special things you have to do, which is lucky. And we have, like, Discord now to talk to each other. It's a really, really, really fun experience. You could remake those games, slap them on Steam, and have online through that. 
And a lot of people love them to the point that there's been games inspired by the Outbreak games. And all of them are terrible. <laughs> so we need an official one. <laughs> so it's tell that to a big publisher to say, this game has been remade many times and it's terrible. Make it. <laughs> well, but that's no, the thing. is, like People I, I, have, I, I people have made rip-offs of it that yeah. totally miss the point of what made it fun. That's the problem. Yeah, and that's the problem. Whenever there's a great idea, like I can't tell you how many remakes there are of certain games that I love. Like They never quite get it right. You know, it's like, they, they they get like the visuals or like the the cosmetic things right, but they don't get a certain gameplay feature that's core to the experience quite down. Like people, mm. a lot of these people aren't as as experienced game designers. So they're they're trying to mimic really fine tuned engines with very limited experience. So yeah, I see what you mean with that. But uh, yeah, remakes are are a really interesting beast because you can actually not remake something enough and disappoint people greatly because you. People, when you present something that's outdated in a much prettier shell, people will all of a sudden notice all of the cracks underneath, mm-hmm. the, all the all the old, outdated, low, you know, quality of life stuff that you wouldn't have, you didn't notice back then because that's how games were. But now you're like, oh man, these controls are really rough, you know, or oh man, uh, I didn't realize just how much busy work it was in this in this menu or oh god i have to pause every five seconds because of this or they didn't actually have a quick a quick menu for changing my weapon i have to go into this complex inventory system switch it go back and then you know that's how games were back at the time so you know you can actually... all creative time water temple taking your boots on and off <laughs> just to get like it's like genuinely five seconds apart to go through some hallways that's one of the things around the ds one though you just hit a little thing on the touch screen and it just takes your boots on and off there's no difficulty change at all it just saves you a lot of time yeah that's mm. quality of life features i mean games now they just you're you're expected to have a much easier uh go at it for players a much less tedious go at it for players so you know those kind of things are expected now but if you make a mm-hmm. true remake of a game and don't you know smooth over over those rough corners you can get uh you know backlash so how much you change or how much you clean up or or smooth out or polish is a big factor and then you know one hand you get a game like uh you know re1 remake which is a pretty true to form thing with some additions and and things that were fixed and on the other hand, you get something, um, it's not necessarily bad, but this Final Fantasy VII remake is a completely different game. You could, ar- you could argue it's not even yeah. a remake, it's a reinterpretation. You know, it's not a remaster, yeah. it's not a remake, really. It's not even the same genre. It's not even really a JRPG. It's a, you know, action RPG, you know, somewhat of a Western-style RPG hybrid thing with, mm-hmm. like, kind of pause, you know, uh, real-time with pause combat, you know, and that may be great. It may be awesome, but it's it's so different that you might actually alienate the original fans. But then again, if you were to take Final Fantasy VII as is, make it prettier, people would have forgotten how many random encounters that I played that game a couple years ago. Uh, it has a ton of random encounters that are really, really annoying. And there's a lot of slow parts. There's a lot of great moments. It's still a great game, but people would have forgotten all the rough edges because the, the, the really high moments stand out in your memory rather than the hours and hours and hours of just walking five steps, random yep. encounter, five steps, random encounter, five steps, random encounter, you know? So If I can make a hot take real quick, Final <laughs> Fantasy VII is not as good as everybody says. It is a fan- It is a game with a fantastic story told to you by a blithering moron. It is- I have asked dozens of people 
to give me the synopsis of what is the plot of Final Fantasy VII, and they all have such drastically different answers, because no one gets the same thing out of it, because the story's told to you so poorly. If you wiki-dive hard enough, and you find every little thing, and you learn the whole story, it's really great. It's a shame they told to you, they told it to you, like an idiot. Yeah, and I like a lot of Final Fantasy games earlier in the series and later in the series. That one got by on its looks because, good God! Yeah, no, no, no it's uh, and again, you could, you can, the whole subjectivity thing. You can look at it like, oh, maybe it's supposed to be fractured because Cloud has such a fractured and broken mind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that yeah, there's so, there's so, fairness to that. Yeah, so, some moments I think are very effective because it's not told in a, in a very logical sequential format. Like some of the parts are like, I actually before I replayed it for my video a couple of years ago, um, I actually forgot whole sections of that game because they weren't actually real. <laughs> they didn't actually happen. You know. <laughs> I, I misremembered the the fake stuff with the real stuff. I thought that a certain person did this thing. But actually, it was a yep. different person because a whole part of the, the story was was actually unreliable narrator. And you're like, okay, that's weird. And it, and you know, half remembering a game from 1997, you're gonna you're gonna misremember some things, especially when half of it was from an unreliable narrator. But yeah, and yeah. that's not necessarily bad either. I no. think that Final Fantasy VII. Um, it's one of the few non-horror games that ever genuinely really creeped me out oh, and fascinate really, me. Really, really creepy game. And even though I, I played that one a bit older, for some reason, um, there's very specific visuals that creep me out and would kind of stick with me. And visuals don't really stick with me because I, I have aphantasia. I can't picture things in my head. Mm. Um, but the thought of certain things uh, would really bother me growing up. And one of those was, uh, even though I didn't grow up with a PlayStation, so I, I had limited experience with Final Fantasy VII, um, was, what was the name of the town that Cloud came from again? M uh, not Midgar. Mid Midgar, Midgar was the was dome. Um, down. Uh, what, what was the town that, that Cloud remembered getting, something. like, Nil uh, Niflheim. Uh, Niflheim. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that's what it was. The the whole Niflheim incident, just even that like is... them referring to it as the Niflheim incident and like yeah. seeing it get burned down. You walk there and it's fine. And it looks yeah. for something something about seeing it exactly how it was before it was burnt down and knowing this was burnt down, our character believes this was burnt down, and like everything's off, and you walk there and it's got that slightly haunting music, and there's that slightly haunting mansion yeah. and everything. Something about that was so eerie to me and it's like this is genuinely kind of disturbing like and it's funny because i prefer so many other final fantasy games i thought six sometimes called three was really really great i think four sometimes called two was really really great i think final fantasy one was great in its own way it had a really good game boy advance remake uh final fantasies two and three like the actual two and three yeah, two kind of sucked. Yeah, Three bit. was just five, but not as good. Five was better. Um, but uh, my fiance is playing through two right now, and and there's actually an exploit in that game. One of the best ways to level up your characters is to attack each other. Your other party members. Yeah, just punch each other. <laughs> yeah, because that had this stupid leveling system where uh, using a skill makes you better at that skill, which sounds on paper like yeah, there are games like that. No, I mean to get health, you have to get hit. So. Like, your mage in the back row who rarely gets hit, 
You want him to get more health? Okay, you gotta go grind for a while. And by grind, I mean fight something weak and just spend your time punching your mage and then healing him. Like, it's the <laughs> dumbest thing you've ever heard. I can't believe that game like, got sold up. to humans. <laughs> like, and then and then there's, like, Final Fantasy VII, where the combat's fine. Um, and there's a lot of haunting things, like, uh, I'm deeply afraid of underwater because I can't swim and almost drown a few times. Yeah. So the idea of the, I think it's the sapphire weapon, the one underwater, that haunts the shit out of me. Um, a lot of the visuals are very haunting to me because I find um, there was something about there's certain eras of game where the way that they animate things creeps the hell out of me often. Yeah. The two biggest examples of that would be one, there's a lot of PlayStation 1 stuff with weird uh, polygonal things or sprites that are scaled too high so they're blocky like Niflheim looks like that. And there's something haunting about that because it's just not right. And the other haunting thing is playing PC games... PC is almost always PC RPGs with a general medieval fantasy setting during like a certain period of time, like um, Daggerfall and Morrowind both have a lot of things that would look totally normal in any other game, but haunt the hell out of me when I see them in those games. And it's intriguing, like not haunting in a turn off game kind of way, haunting in like a, I want to explore more and I know I'm going to jump at something that wasn't meant to be scary, but yeah. I'm so into it. Some somehow the way it was rendered, the, the early CG plus the lighting, very very dramatic. Like very, uh, I, another game that's also really good around that time was uh, Parasite Eve. It was just had a very kind of off putting, mm. offset. I still uh, need un, to play un, it. Settling. It was also another Square game, but yeah, I know what you mean. It like, seems cool. Yeah, no, it, it, I played it. Uh, streamed it like in October. Uh, I think it was the last last game I streamed in October. One of the last games I streamed in October just now. Um, it holds up pretty well. I, I just ran an EPSXE, just the emulator. It's fine, but we're so off topic. But yeah, no, uh, I, I totally know what you mean. There's a very weird, offset, unsettling, late '90s aesthetic that a lot of games did. Uh, mm -hmm. The kind of that kind of CG that's very creepy. It's not really realistic. It's just got a very creepy, otherworldly uh, feel to it. And uh, it's hard to put your finger on what it is. Yeah, it's just very. It's very. Uh, it's synthetic, but strangely, I don't know. I can't really put it into words, but it, yeah, it's that. It's it that, probably triggers something to do with the Uncanny Valley yeah. with our minds. Yeah. Maybe. Probably. Yeah. yeah, but there's some great scenes in Seven. I think Seven, it was definitely, I'd say it's probably uh, aesthetically the darkest, you know, Final Fantasy game. Uh, I think, uh, uh, oh, crap, what's his name? Um, Oh Lord, the designer of the Final Fantasy series. Um, oh, um, oh shit! Now that you say it, I've heard the name a bunch of times, and it's not yeah, coming to me. Yeah, I, it's I forget, but uh, his mother died around the time, so he was in a pretty dark place. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, Nobuo Uematsu soundtrack for some of those tracks. I think it's definitely up there as far as soundtracks. Some of those tracks, like uh, the Niflheim, uh, the the, the music playing to that is just like really really haunting Oof. and some of those, yeah and this and the cutscenes in that game were actually quite short but they were so sudden and unexpected that they just kind of like they showed you a really graphic image and then cut away from it really quickly and i think they were very effective yeah. in that. it was almost like a uh kind of like the um what's another what's a movie that does that uh kind of like the exorcist a little bit to show you a little bit of something very kind of weird and react and then it would cut away 
Like I remember mm-hmm. the first time you see Genova, for example, it's just you see this weird. Oh blur, yeah, that the, the whole idea of Genova yeah. creeps me out. Like there's so much haunting stuff in that game, and like on some level, it's probably supposed to creep you out. But I do think that the the medium of the game and the limitations of the time made it even more haunting in a yeah. way that I really really like. Like it was probably a happy accident more than anything. But as someone who's really into that kind of haunting intrigue, uh, I love that. Uh, that's that's fascinating to me. I I see people in the chat bring up Sweet Home by the way, which was a large inspiration for Resident Evil. It was an NES RPG that was a horror game mm. that. Uh, had cutscenes that were like really haunting, had a lot of haunting stuff in it. Sweet Home's a fantastic game. And yes, there was a Sweet Home movie that was also scary as hell. Yeah, I didn't realize that, uh, yeah, it's those kind of early uh, kind of survival horror games, you forget that they go back that far. I mean, it, at a, at one point, Castlevania was considered a horror game, <laughs> even though it's kind of a little bit That's wild dialogue. to think. It, yeah, yeah. Like horror action game, but I mean, it was supposed. Is there to be a, a remake movie. of Sweet Home? It looks like there's. Is, is there it, a remake re- of done recently? Home Sweet Home. This one says. Oh, okay. That's not the same thing. Um, yeah, there's a game on NES called Sweet Home. If you just like go do NES Sweet Home Google image yeah. search, I just like, found it. But then, as a result, it linked in all this. I thought maybe the two might be related, but maybe just to share the name. So. I don't think that would be really, but if you just image search NES Sweet Home, you'll see like a lot of the images that would be really haunting for the time. Like they even look pretty creepy now. Yeah, they look pretty good. Very. It's it's a good game. Yeah, it's interesting what you can pull off. Um, and also like you're looking at it through a high high res uh, LCD screen, but at the Mm -hmm. time you're looking at through. There's actually examples where they take the same sprite in like pixel the actual pixels and an HD screen and the same sprite in it's uh, a crt screen and you see so much more detail like ima- yeah. imagined uh, like rounded out details and and uh whatnot in the uh the crt monitor version that you wouldn't see just looking at the pixels but because of the mm-hmm. scan lines and everything it, it, there's so much suggested detail that you don't wouldn't normally get and they designed those sprites for that medium so you know back in the day they look a lot better than it does now but um if you want a great segue, by the way, Sweet Home had permadeath. You only had five characters in the whole game. You had them from the start. They all had very vital things that they did. And if any of them go to zero health, or if you don't do a trap properly, permadeath, and it's like a straight RPG of trying to get out of this mansion, beginning to end. And if someone permanently dies, then you need, not only is the game harder as an RPG, because you need to level more and be extra careful in everything with your characters, but you also need to pick up extra items that would act for the role of whatever that character's special item was. In inventory management, everyone can only hold two items plus their special item. So, like, you know, one guy had, I think it was a flashlight. If he's permanently dead, you gotta go find a lighter, and someone's gonna have to carry that thing around to do the same role. You know, like, um, another person is, like, a photographer. They always have a camera with them. You need to be able to get a camera that someone else has used an inventory slot for if that person were to die. And there's... There are different endings for what combination people are alive at the end. NES game, like 1988, oh. I want to say. That's uh, like, it's uh, it. I mean, it's, it's so cool. Those were all the selling points for um, Until Dawn. Actually, the whole characters can yeah. die. You know, different endings, different. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me like if, if, in some way, it was inspired down the the line of inspirations because Sweet Home was what inspired um, Resident Evil. In fact, Resident Evil's door opening transitions to masculine mm-hmm. screens came from Sweet Home. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really cool. No, 
Um, I think we've gotten through most of the list. There's a couple other little stragglers. I do want to wrap it up pretty soon, but um, do, you, do you have any thoughts on uh, cross-platform play? I noticed that's kind of made a comeback. There was like, there was an attempt at one point to do cross-play between uh, consoles and PC, where uh, I think the the one of the most uh, famous examples or infamous examples was the Shadowrun game that they made for the Xbox 360, where you could actually have PC players fighting console players <laughs> in the same matches. And That's cool. It, cool, except for the console players got massacred because of the PC players yeah. were, had just better controls, better frame Mouse and keyboard. Yeah, mouse yeah. and ke- keyboard warriors. <laughs> um, but it's it's actually gotten a com- uh, a comeback. Um, Call of Duty has cro- uh, cross-play. How weird is oh. that? The new latest Call of Duty yeah. game has cross-play. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Like, with I kind of think that it's kind of an eventuality because as consoles start to get, you know, I think you, you can actually get a mouse for for uh, um, Xbox Ones now. And I used to with PS3. I don't know if you used to be able to play it on games much, but uh, as consoles become more like PCs, it kinda, it's kind of almost an, event, uh, an eventuality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, that's one of the main advantages behind consoles. Uh, I know my, my mate, for example, back in Perth, he he only, like, two months ago got a proper PC for him to play on. He's just been playing console for most of his life because he approaches gaming like, I just want to buy the one thing that ensures that I can play a game that day. You know, yeah. he just wants that convenience, and that's what consoles can provide. Like, It's pretty much like a pre-built, like, essentially, it's, it's coming towards getting pre-built PCs and just having that assurance of I can play any game on here. I don't have to check the specs. I don't have to do anything. I have like all the controls with me and, and everything. You just plug it in and put the CD in or download the game and just start playing. And that's what it, the, the advantage consoles have. So having those two markets begin to start, have the Venn diagram start to overlap a little bit. We, yeah, maybe p- consoles will start having key, uh, keyboard console uh keyboard mouse and just you know people play on their laps yeah they have peripherals like that and just play on their laps on the couch i know plenty of people that do that with pc so yeah yeah i mean it it and and especially if there's something that's you know mouse and keyboard has been holding on for quite a while but i doubt it's the end goal of all gaming i'm sure there's something somebody hasn't quite put together yet that'll be a little bit more accurate a little bit more less stress on your hands something you know uh, uh Maybe maybe motion control be better, or you can actually aim with your fingers through the air. Who knows? But uh, yeah, I mean, as more technology comes out, and and honestly, consoles are actually losing some of the be- their best qualities recently with having to update them constantly, having to run out of hard drive space, having to getting poor performance. You know, having multiple tiers of consoles now. I mean, these this latest gen actually surprised us with now having like two or three tiers of of power levels you know you've got your xbox one xbox one s xbox one x you know where you're not going to get the same experience out of each of them so yeah it's, it's kind of like some games just don't run very well on the on the vanilla xbox you know and yeah that used to be a thing where like if you buy this console you'll be able to play every single game really well but now you don't really get that experience much anymore so it's i think it's because of the rate that we release games and develop games and everything like that consoles yeah. are becoming less and less future proof like yeah. I bought a PS2. I remember how long I had a PS2 for, and I just I had it for so long until the mm-hmm. PS3 came along. You know, it's just yeah, it's PS2, just a different sort of yeah. New games were coming out for the PS2 well into the PS3's life cycle. Like it, it died. Yeah. I think 
um, possibly like four or five years into the PS3's life cycle, and finally they just stopped making PS2 games. But it had a. I'm pretty sure the last PS2 games were made when the PlayStation 4 was out. Really? It could be. Yeah. Yes, it's it's astonishing. Like the PS2 is the longest actively developed for a console of all time, I believe. It was also one of the most popular. So that makes sense. And there was, and certain yeah. certain games had a really long uh, lifespan, like the FIFA games and things like that. Uh, sports games. San Andreas. <laughs> San Andreas, yeah. San Andreas sold like crazy for like a decade. It's unbelievable. Yeah, but uh, I, I'm open to it. I, I mean, I actually was able, to, and and it's partly due to like probably um, mechanics put in place for console for uh, controller users. But for a while, I was playing uh, Titanfall on PC with a controller, and I was able to I was able to top the charts sometimes. So it wasn't an, a completely unfair advantage, probably due to some some like slight aim adjustments and things like that that they you don't really you can't really tell, but. They do probably have a little bit of auto aim for console or for controller players, but yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's interesting. Like, how do you bridge that gap? Um, I personally like it because I've seen a lot of PC games have their community die, and there's one of those things like once once a community gets lower than a certain amount, it just inevitably just dies out because not enough people to get regular games, so people turn away from the game, and therefore the population continues to decrease. There's a the death spiral basically. But with uh, if consoles and PCs can play on the same platform in the same matches, it, you can essentially keep the guy, the game alive indefinitely until everybody stops playing. Mm-hmm. So. Paragon did this. Paragon did cross play between PS4 and PC. And I, as a player of Paragon, um, you noticed uh, I I can't remember at what point they put PS4 in their own thing or whatever. But um, you would notice when you were up against a console player. Like it, it was. It's a, it's a MOBA with aiming. Mecha- like you could actually aim at the ground in like it's a three D like perspective, yeah. not like a top down MOBA. It was three D, so like you could really tell when people would like miss with like aimed projectiles. You're like, what? You know, <laughs> how would you miss that? I was right here. But yeah, with a console, although there's some people who are really good with playing with controller and all that sort of stuff. So it's not to you know neg the um people who play on console and stuff and say there's uh, some sort of decreased skill at no point like mastering that controller with that game would have been absolutely phenomenal to watch but i think off the bat there would be a definite advantage yeah, you just get so much more uh granularity like you know there's only so much your thumb can move but you can move mm-hmm. your mouse like way you can get so much more yeah. pinpoint accuracy. an analog stick has a range of motion of one inch yeah. Whereas my shoulder has a range of motion of my desk. Like, yeah. it's not comparable. Like, it's a complete unfair advantage to have a mouse. And not just that, but the hardware advantages have better frame rates, better resolutions. You know, yeah. quite, often, quite often console games run at like sub HD or, or just 1080p, whereas some people are playing 4K at 144 hertz or whatever. You know, you can really, you can, it's not really comp, it's not a comparable experience. But I know that some people, like the best console players, can defeat most, you know, probably over half of the PC players at least. But the best PC players will, will generally trump the best console players just due to hardware differences. But a uh, couple games to try it out. I think Gears of War 4 had crossplay. I don't know about 5. Um, Rocket League finally did crossplay cross uh, PS4 and Xbox, which is impressive. 
Halo Master Chief Collection, I think, is is doing something with that. They're at least doing cross progression, possibly cross play at some point. But yeah, it's it's a cross platform. It's 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 a it's still sketchy. But as as consoles and PCs become more the same, I think it'll kind of continue. But I think it's overall probably a good thing. But I think that the way that uh, Call of Duty uh, handled it is that you can just turn off cross play if you want to, which I think is fine. Like if you don't want to play in mi- in mixed servers, you don't have to. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's one of those things. They don't really have a perfect solution for it yet because it's just not the same, not the same experience. All right. Well, um, I think we're pretty much through most of the list. Do you have anything else you want to bring up? Any other thoughts uh, before we end off? No, um, I even got to mention the RTS remake stuff. So yeah, I'm all good then. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, sorry for the delay in the uh, setup. Now that setup, <laughs> oh, good man, it happens. New software should be a lot less of a of a pain to get it set up again. But uh, thanks so much for all your patience. Had a had a blast.